Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this is episode 187. I had a chat with the musician Mark DeClive Lowe. He's uh, he's a Kiwi, but he lives overseas. He's, um, well, he's a biracial Japanese New Zealand musician who is now based in America. He's also done a long stint in the UK. Um, he has re- been releasing his own albums across the last two decades, and there are plenty of those. Uh, but he's also a, a jobbing musician, a working guy who has done sessions with some of the greats. I mean, and we're talking about a guy who has met his heroes and played with them. He has stories here about playing with uh, Harvey Mason, the great, great jazz drummer that appeared on George Benson Records and, and all manner of things and, and still makes music to this day under his own name. Um, Mark is the is the go-to guy for a lot of these people. He he turns up and does the work and plays. He, I'd never met him. I'd never interviewed him. So I was always very curious to have a chat with him. He was in town recently uh, playing some shows and I, I grabbed the opportunity to, to have some time with him and we had a great chat. I hope you enjoy I hope you enjoy this. This is me talking with uh, a fantastic musician, Mark to Clive Lowe. My thanks as always to Yeastie Boys, Tea Leaf Tea and La Petit Chocolat. Man, where do we start? So we've just met, we've we've spent about four minutes yes. saying that we don't really know each other at all. <laughs> we've exchanged a f- couple of emails, a couple of messages. I've reviewed some of your albums and I've certainly listened to some other ones that I haven't written about but I've liked. I remember reviewing one on the Good Morning TV show years ago. Wow. Yeah, cool. so I followed your work. Um, but you've been out of the country for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I left... Um I left fully in 2000. Wow, but I, that but, but I actually, before that, I did college in Boston in 94. Yeah. Um, I finished high school in Japan. Like, I'm half Japanese, so I spent yes, a, lot, a yeah, lot of time yeah, there. Yeah. So I feel like I've been coming and going yeah, yeah. as long as I can remember. Yeah, so do you, do you feel like a... Did you ever feel like a New Zealander, and do you uh, on any level? <laughs> I mean, the... the I, think I the, feel like that must be slowly disappearing. I think that the underlying question, too, is what is a New Zealander yeah. and how that's changed decade to decade. Mm. So for me, growing up ostensibly in the 80s in Auckland, being half Japanese, I felt very other. Mm. Like, I didn't. there was no one else like me. And at school, there was one kid from Sri Lanka, one from Pakistan, one from China, that was it. There were no, no halves, no biracial people, for sure. Mm-mm. And so for me growing up, I didn't, I really didn't relate to my European kind of, half. I didn't. Mm. I just didn't. It didn't mean anything to me then. Well, also, I've, I mean, you you grew up in a Japanese house in Auckland, right? Like, a, yeah, like was, you learnt yeah, yeah Japanese was, culture. It was very bicultural. Yeah, 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 yeah. the whole way bilingual. Mm, mm. And so, so I kind of gravitated more to that, but there was nothing to support that in society around me in my community. Um, and so I ended up, I ended up actually gravitating towards all the all the PI kids like you know we ended up right, yeah, yeah. and that like the, the musically too I ended up kind of going that direction um, getting into hip hop and new jack swing and stuff and so I there were times when I really felt like oh this this fits but other times it didn't fit the irony is the longer I'm away the more of a New Zealander I feel I realise right, I am yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think that for like for New Zealanders who, who may know of me they, they, they might be like oh yeah he left like decades ago yeah. <laughs> like he's not even a kiwi kind of thing but yeah. then wherever i am in the world the first when i get presented by a you know a festival or a promoter or whatever yeah, yeah. the first thing is 
New Zealander. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's that's who that's what I am, and that's definitely. And I guess just accent wise on a world stage, that's totally what yeah. you sound like. That's, yeah, you know, so pe- people are gonna ask. Yeah, where oh, are you from? Where are you from? Like, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah it's, it's it's. I feel like. And you're not a stranger to here in the sense that um, well, you're here now, for yeah. example, <laughs> and you've and you've been coming back. Yeah, definitely. Been playing. Yeah. And your records, you know, your mm-hmm. records turn up here, and people have a memory of. <laughs> you, well, I presume they do. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm just going on my own radar. Yeah. You know, people have a mem- Oh, he was he was in Auckland. He yeah. was from Auckland. Yeah. Because you would have come up in a in a scene with people like Manuel Bundy and yeah, Nathan, Nathan Haynes. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah, that was yeah, a time. yeah. And that, that was a real time, right? That was, was a golden real... era, man. For Auckland. Well, we'll get we'll get to that. Let's let's um, stick with your. Um, Childhood. Yeah. So what was going on? I mean, you got you got the piano chucked at you, right? You got, yes. You got yes. The <laughs> I, I, there was no time to sidestep or nothing. It mm. just it landed full force. Like, mm. so my dad, when he was, there was a lot of music in his family. Right. Like his my his father was super musical, and his granddad. And then. But what a, about him? Well, his older brother was taking piano lessons. Right. And so he wanted to play piano. So he said to his dad, like, you know, I want to take piano lessons. And his dad, I don't know what the justification was, but he was like, oh, your brother's already playing piano. That's enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then when my dad was 13, you know, the ripe, wise mm. adult age of one, three, and his dad said to him, okay, you can learn piano now. He decided it was too late. Mm. He's like, no, it's too late. And if I ever have kids come hell or high water, they'll bloody well learn musical <laughs> instruments. And so... There were three of us, three boys, and we all had to learn instruments. And he, what was he doing with that? Like, was he trying to cre- create a family band, do you think? I, or I think, just... I think on some level he felt like... Well, he felt like it was taken away from him. Yeah, yeah, I so, get that. So but was he... Did he choose specific instruments for... You know, was there any choice in it for you guys at any stage? Or? I did gravitate to the piano because mm-hmm. my eldest brother was playing piano. Mm-hmm. And then my middle brother... He didn't really gel with music, and so he just went through a whole lot of instruments. Um, but I, you know, I took to the piano. What I found interesting in, in, in hindsight is I feel like most musicians, most of my friends, actually, they they chose their instrument. And like you hear stories like someone's like, yeah, I went to this this gig and and the, I just heard the bass and I, I just, oh my god, I, yeah, I had yeah, to play yeah, bass. Yeah. You know, I I didn't have that. I played piano because I was told to, and I continued because I had I was. I was scared of my dad. He was really authoritarian and strict and old school. Mm-mm. So it actually took me a long time, and which we'll get to talking about it, but through my chronology as an artist, I had to leave the piano for a decade yeah, and then came back to it and had to create my own relationship with it mm. where it's not kind of burdened by this trauma of fear which, was, which started it. Uh, so you... This is you going to keyboards since electric mm-hmm. stuff yeah and people see that some people are like oh it's a keyboard but it's psychologically completely different it's funny that isn't it it's like you have um electric guitar players mm-hmm. and acoustic guitar mm-hmm. players and yes many can do both mm-hmm. but people do tend to specialize absolutely and yeah. it's not even though that happens with piano and keys it's not seen that way you're right people just go oh they look keyboardist. the same yeah. Must must be a good piano player, vice no. versa, and yeah. and often not the case at all, and often limited experience. Oh, totally. I yeah. mean, you look at an instrument like an organ. Mm. Like most organ players, 
they they sound great on organ. That's all. Mm-hmm. And most keyboard players sound average on organ. Mm. You know, it's a special instrument. It has its own voice. So when you ditched the piano, mm. did you go to anything else outside of the piano keyboard family? Well, I mean, I got heavily into sampling. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So it was yeah. like drum machines and stuff like yeah. that. So it was, a, it was a different modality. I kind of, I kind of, it was actually when I, when I moved to London and I, I just turned my back on the piano completely. If, if I was doing a studio session and the producer's like, yo, let's put some piano on this track. I was like, nah, let's put some Juno on this track or mm. some Rhodes. Mm. And or, or one of my boys would be like, yo, let's go and play a trio gig just for fun. But like, nah, not happening. <laughs> so I was, I was this zero tolerance. Mm. Um, and it was more about, it was partly about rejecting the piano as an instrument, but it was also about kind of deconstructing the musician that I had become. Like I, I came up through like a kind of a, what they called neoclassical jazz thing, like the post-Winter mm. Marsalis school of yeah. reviving the old school jazz, yeah. the 60s thing. And I came up through that, and I love that music, but I wanted to really just get that out, just deconstruct that. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, synths, drum machines, samplers, house music, jungle, broken beat, like those became my ways to explore musicality without having to be on a piano or stuck in this kind of genre th- straitjacket. It's funny, I... I talked with Nathan Haynes just a week ago yeah and um, it's you know I know you guys know each other and 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 have played similar styles at similar times mm. and ca- sort of came up together in, in some sense but it's quite amazing how similar your story is sounding in many ways. You know, his <laughs> music was kind of forced on him by his father. Totally. And he did that, you know, loves jazz, mm-hmm. can quote it, can play mm-hmm. it, loves it. But he yeah. fell out of, had to step away from it. Yeah, to find your own voice. Did the same thing. Yeah, And man. then went back to it. Mm-hmm. And now is, I guess, incorporating it in what he does. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's, it's, Absolutely. it's there, but it's like he's found his, his voice around that. Yeah. I mean, it took me like 10 years away from the piano then to reconnect with it when I moved to LA from London. Mm. And I, it was so fascinating because I felt like I lost a lot of technical facility because I used to play a lot of piano and playing keyboards isn't the same technical demand as the piano, mm. right? Um, so I'd lost a lot of te- technique, but, uh, but then I, I was hearing it as a producer instead of as a young piano player. And those were very different things. Like I was hearing you know, colors and shapes and notes in the way I'd make a record, but live on stage. I think as a young piano player, I just wanted to play as fast and hard and flashy as possible. Yeah, yeah. So that was really, it took me a minute to to iron that out, but I ironed that out by stepping away for a decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I was going to say, like, you, you when you leave New Zealand, you you still you know it's quite a young age and time to go. But you're used to travelling, right? So you, yeah. So when does travel? Yeah. You know, so you grow up in this um, bicultural mm. house and mm. family in Auckland. But when when do you get an idea of Japan? Uh, not just <clears throat> geographically, but oh, for sure. You know, like when do you start to understand that yeah. you're being taught? To, you know, you recognise that you're unique. Mm-hmm. But when do you recognise the factors that are contributing to you being unique? Absolutely. So, so growing up in the house, it was clear that we were different. Mm. I mean, so that from the from the gate, that was clear. But then I started going to Japan. I went from age ten every 
I guess it would have been, would have been winter holidays here because it was summer in Japan. And so I go to see family, um, and my mum was doing some work up there, so I go to things with her. And that was that was life changing. That's like you know seeing the seeing the roots from which our life came, and especially seeing where my mum came from, mm-hmm. and, you know, getting to know my grandma and my cousins and mm-hmm. stuff. That was massive. But then the huge, the absolute pendulum shift was um, I did my last year of high school in Japan, and. I don't know how you were, but for me at that age, you couldn't tell me shit about nothing. Like, Mm-mm. you know, 17 or whatever. It was like, I knew everything. And so I was like, yeah, I'm half Japanese. I've been going to Japan. I speak Japanese. This, I'm going to be <laughs> fine on this. I got culture shock. Yeah. Like for real. Yeah. And that was an amazing thing to experience. Like, oh, I thought I knew this place, but I don't. So that year I was in high school um, my host father was a Buddhist priest, quite a senior Buddhist priest, which I was horrified at the idea of that before I went. <laughs> but then I go there, and I reckon maybe in the first or second week of being there, I'm walking down the hallway in the house, and he's got a little office, kind of study study room, and the door's closed. But I'm walking past, and I'm just hearing the most insane music coming out of his room. So I like knock on the door. I'm like, oh, excuse me, like, you know, what are you listening to? It's like, oh, this, this is the new Miles Davis live at the plug nickel box set that came out today. Should I get you one? <laughs> Just calls up, the, calls up the store. Like, yeah, send me another box set. And then, but he, I mean, and you know, Miles at the plug nickel is mm. some pretty out jazz yeah fuck yeah i love that it's incredible yeah right? yeah yeah you know herbie wrong you just Tony. mentioning it it's given me flashback to sitting in my flat on the terrace yeah at you know 1920 right thinking that no one else had heard it because no one else in my flat gave right. a fuck about it right and that was cool you know you, yeah. you know those moments where you're just sitting totally. there again like such early days of the internet that yep. it's effectively pre-internet it was not, totally pre-internet yeah you know and i'm just sitting there going no one else knows about yeah. this and I've found it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's one of those. It's one of those. Just, it's so it's so avant-garde too. Yeah. I used to, you always used to line it up with um, Coltrane's Africa Brass. Sure. I mean to play. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, just yeah. lining them up yeah, to play together. Yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so here I am at 17 thinking, oh my mm. God, I'm stuck living with a Buddhist priest for a year. But he's listening to <laughs> Miles yeah. while he's looking at a book of Miles paintings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, wait, what? Yeah. And so then a few days later, I'm like, you know, this, um, there's this gig in Tokyo. We're in Yokohama. There's this gig up in Tokyo that, you know, I really want to go to. You might like. It's Joe Henderson and Freddie Hubbard Quintet. Mm. He's like, cool, let's go. So basically this year of high school, I was in, I was in class, but we were going to Got your real education was happening out of class. Yeah. Like, yeah. there were 64 jazz clubs in Tokyo at that time. Yeah. And we were doing a lot of them. <laughs> wow. And then there was a local one in the neighborhood where... Well, I remember one night after the band finished, they were sitting down having their meal and drinks after the gig. And I went over, I was like, hey, you know, excuse me, but would it be cool if I played a tune with you? And the, it was a bass player's band who I didn't know, but he was a legend from the 70s in Japan. <laughs> right, yeah. It's kind of like the wrong kind of yeah. thing. Like, you know, you might have played a tune. <laughs> um, but he, he humored me and that, and that became a thing we do. Like wow. every now and then I'd go to his gig and we'd play a tune after they finish. Yeah. And I got to play with these Japanese jazz cats. It's funny, I went to see that same guy play recently. I hadn't seen him in 25 years. 
And it was funny. He was like, yeah, I remember you. Like, he's, he's much older now. Mm-mm. So it's kind of scratching the head a bit, mm. but he fully remembered. And, wow. and that was... So that's what, for me, was a huge turning yeah. point where I was supposed to come back to New Zealand after that and go to law school. But I just had my world turn inside out. Mm. You know, this music I've been listening to, I got to really see it. Love it, yeah. in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I went to see Alvin Jones Quartet with Wynton Marsalis and Marcus Roberts doing a Love Supreme. Fuck, stop it. <laughs> and that, that is a record. It's, yeah. that, that specific gig I was at is a record. Yeah, wow. Um, but that, that was the first time I heard of Love Supreme. And it's mm. like Alvin with Wynton. So on the way home, I bought the original. Mm. And it made sense because I'd just seen Wynton and Alvin do it, you know. Mm. But so that kind of thing. I love how um, a Love Supreme was such a thing for Alvin. Oh my God. You know, like it's like he's such a you know everyone on that record's amazing, and yeah. you can't imagine it with other players no. and all of that. But I love how significant it is in Alvin's journey, like because uh-huh. I became a a massive fan of his playing, as I think anyone right. would listening to that. Yeah. So I started, and, and I played drums a little bit. So right. I started buying whatever Alvin Jones CDs I could get for a while. And there's all these great live versions of him playing parts of, you know, if not the whole thing, then parts of it, or like a truncated suite of it. Yeah, like it's so cool how he he clearly was like, you know, this is this is some shit. (laughs) You know, like it wasn't just a gig it wasn't just a hired gig for him. I I do I remember it really messed me up watching him play. Well there are two things. Firstly is before he played I went and said hello and shook my hand and almost crushed every bone in my mm. hand. Like the man had massive hands with immense strength in them. Mm. And then the second thing was watching him play. Is it like, it sounded so, you know, bombastic in that way, which is Elvin going full, you know, full mm. tilt. Mm. But watching him, it was like he was doing Tai Chi. It was like these kind of just these circles yeah, in the yeah. air. It was so beautiful, but yeah, you're no, hearing this craziness. Very painterly, you know. Amazing. Yeah, 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 wow. But it's all that kind of thing, and then I come back to New Zealand, <laughs> and then there's law school. Yeah. And I'll never forget, first day of law school, I'm in bed, I'm like, nah, this is not going to happen. And then my dad's knocking on my bedroom door, he's like, Mark, you got to get up, you got, you got university today. I'm like, nah, I'm not going, I'm going to do music. Went back to sleep. <laughs> what was your What was your dad's whole kick with Japan? So he's not Japanese, but he. Right. So did he meet your mother in Japan? So he. And what was his deal? Because he clearly embraced the entire. Oh my god! So he he went there when he was twenty three years old. Yeah. For three months to, to teach English, he left twenty years later. Right. With my mum, my two brothers, and me on the way. Yeah. Right. Like he he made a whole life there. He was one of the first non-military Westerners to be in Hiroshima. Like, he got there in 1954. So that's like nine years after the bomb, but mm. it was still just mm. nothing. So yeah. I've never been to Japan. And it, it, it fascinates me that the it's one of those places that I hear from people. People click with it on such a level yeah. that they... Do versions of what your father did. Yeah, they don't just go for three months. It might only be two years, not twenty, yeah. but it's a significant chunk of their life. And then they yeah. go back, you know, or or people visit and go, "That was a crazy place. I'm glad I went there." Yeah, but uh, I don't know if I need to go. You well, know, like, there's you know, no like, in between. Exactly, that, and I like, think you know, with t- it turning Japanese, mm. that's a phrase. Mm, mm. You know, right? Mm, mm. But there's no like turning Ethiopian yeah. or yeah, turning yeah. Yeah. Indian or t- like turning Japanese. That's a yeah. thing. Yeah, and yeah, I know a lot of people there who've who went and never left for sure. Yeah, and I think just I mean for me, you know, you talking about seeing Alvin Jones and stuff there. I've always thought 
completely superficially two of my favourite things in life are drinking whiskey and jazz and I know that Japan does <laughs> Japan so does well. Both yeah, yeah. So well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that would be my reason for getting there one day, I think, if nothing else. Mate, I was you would I mean you would love it. There's this mm. thing called the um kisas, which are they're kind of bar cafes purpose made to listen to music. Yeah, yeah. It's usually, it's usually jazz, it's yeah. all vinyl. Yeah. You know, the primary feature is huge custom-made speakers, yes. super high fidelity. I went to one just last month there, and she was playing the, the, the mama-san, the old woman who runs it, she was playing Yamashita Yosuke, who's like the Cecil Taylor of Japan, really avant-garde, mm, mm. out free jazz, blasting it on this amazing system. And you're just there being you know, being enveloped in the sound, and it was because it was aggressive free jazz, it was an assault. Yeah, yeah. But to have such a visceral experience from music, that's incredible, man. Mm, mm. Yeah. yeah, what was that? I mean, I, I think my first, because I was a, a massive fan of Lou Reed going through right. high school. He was, uh, funnily enough, it was like, well, it was Bob Dylan and stuff like that too, uh-huh. but it was also like, Coltrane's Love Supreme and Selective Miles stuff, but yeah. but Lou Reed was the guy for me. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So he was the the dude who like I read all the books and stuff. Wow. And I always remember that my favorite story was, you know, he released that feedback album, uh-huh. Metal Machine Music. It's just noise, and he did it as basically a fuck you to the record company. Yeah, right. <laughs> but when he went to Japan, they yeah. were playing it in the airport. Yeah. I you know, and I, I just thought that you know it was things like that inform your impression of a place. Oh my god, you, you know, so deep. It's speaking. You know, you could you could be accused of speaking in almost not racist, but almost cliches about it. But you uh-huh. know, you 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 you're obviously understanding it straight away. Yeah. You know, with just hearing that story for the first time, it's like it, it is indicative of a culture and a place. That, I mean, it's so deep. Like if, if they if they if the Japanese like yes. something, yeah, they go they all go the they, way all the way. Yeah, yeah. I remember doing press there one year. I can't remember what record it was, but the inter- one interviewer was like, "So, what about the Nuvanesia album?" I was like, "What?" And, you know, New Venetia is a project. We did one record, mm. me, I'm on Star, Manuel Bundy, mm. one record. That's a deep cut in your prob- catalogue. Yeah. There's probably three to 400 CDs out there in circulation. Yeah. All in New Zealand, probably, yes, most, yeah, all, yeah. except for maybe two or something. Yeah, yeah. And here's this journalist in Japan who's asked me about it. You know, that's how, yeah. that's how deep they are. Yes. And so now, from then I learned, oh, don't be surprised about anything in Japan. Yeah, yeah. Like, they will dig all the way there, all the yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. So you 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 have this big love of jazz, but what else are you listening to? Like, because when you're playing piano, when it's when it's all but forced on you, I mean, and you know, I thought this when I talked to Nathan. Um, I mean, playing a musical instrument seriously at a young age, it's actually no different to being a maths prodigy or no, or, exactly. or being yeah. schooled at a sport, right? You exactly. are being trained, you are yes. being put so it's almost irrelevant whether you like it or any of the things that come from it. <laughs> yep. You just you just it's boot camp. Yes it is. Um so, so what was you, my escape from boot camp? <laughs> yeah and well, and and your connection to actual music. So like, I I had a few quite a few escapes. Little epiphany points yeah. I suppose. So yeah. the the youngest first was my dad's record collection. So I was doing classical piano mm. and my dad had a lot of Leonard Bernstein musicals on vinyl and a lot of big band music like 30s jazz. And so that was already so much more modern than what I was mm. learning on piano, mm-hmm. you know, Bach and Beethoven. 
So that was attractive to me. And then, um, and then the next thing was probably I started getting songbooks. I remember my, my, my dad had a Reader's Digest songbook, which was all like, you know, 1930s tunes and like the theme from Alfie and stuff. So I started to play those. And I just wanted to play anything but classical. Mm. To the point I actually had my, I had my classical teacher, I forced him to teach me some jazz stuff, which he knew nothing about, so he, it was actually of no value. But I was that adamant. Um, but then the songbooks came along, and I, I distinctly remember the first one was probably a Beatles songbook, and just getting really heavy into the Beatles catalogue, just sitting at the piano, playing them, singing them all. Mm. Um, and then two obvious ones for me, because they were piano players, were Elton John and Billy Joel. So I, you know, rinse their catalogs. Yeah, yeah. And then Supertramp and Queen. Yeah. So those were probably... Again, piano heavy... Exactly, you know. ...tracks, if yeah. not every track, then certainly a feature yeah. of... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'd be playing Bohemian Rhapsody all day long mm, kind of mm. thing. Um, so those were my initial escapes, and my father didn't mind because I was on the piano. Mm, mm. And then going beyond that, there was a like a huge epiphany moment. I actually just met up with my friend, his name's Joe this morning, and we we're talking about this. Um, I was at Auckland Grammar School, um, which is another place I never felt like I fitted in. Mm. But so I remember in fourth form one day before assembly, Joe, he's Tongan, and yeah, he definitely felt other amongst the, the mainstream mm. kids as well. He walks up to me before assembly and he has his Walkman and he puts his Walkman earphones on my on my head. And it was the first Guy album, Teddy Riley. And that blew my mind because all my peers were listening to, it was like real, it was, it was Pete Cranberry's Pixies kind of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I thought that was cool, but something about it actually didn't resonate with me. Hmm. And when I, when I heard Guy, I think it was the style of harmony, like, you know, coming out of, coming out of the, you know, basically out of the jazz tradition hmm. rather than the rock tradition. Um, and then it was all keyboard-based. I think growing up on piano, I just related to, to the keyboard-based environment, mm, oral mm. environment over the guitar. guitar mm. it was a, it was a, I always remember thinking, like, the 90, early 90s yeah. and, the, and the late 80s, I guess, it was a tricky time for keyboards because, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, another one of my great musical loves is the band Faith No More, and yeah. I thought, like, they did a really great job of integrating keyboards into into hard rock. They did, but yeah. you go and watch them, and uh-huh. and the guy looked silly and self conscious because he's up the front. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no way of making a keyboard look cool in a rock band. People, yeah, people kind of played with one hand, and then what did they do? They sort of looked behind them at yeah. their other hand and checked that it was there. You know, <laughs> like right. what were they actually doing? Like, right. how did they make it cool? Yeah, no, it was challenging. <laughs> I mean, you know, Keith Emerson and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I think, you know, like in the, yeah, in the 70s and the prog stuff, that was fine because it was dazzling and intricate right. and and it was more about power trio right. kind yeah, of. Yeah, but the 80s, you're right. But, with, but when it was five-piece yeah. bands and you had yep. guitar heroes and you had lead singers that yep. leapt about the place, the keyboardist had to compete with that on some level. Yeah, Van Halen tried. Yeah. This is still 80s, but. Yeah. I think they were lucky, though, because they usually, their keyboardist was their guitarist. Right, so, you know, it was kind of like, well, okay, let him look dicky for a minute. He's going to look cool again. It's <laughs> you know? so true. It's, a, yeah. uh, just, it's just a thing I've always thought about. It's like, so interesting. You know, and so I don't know when that changed, but I feel like maybe 
the music that you kind of got into as, as I guess on a level as part of this the, the sort of acid jazz thing is really kind of a thing that pulled it out right made that, it that cool. definitely I mean also just like American R&B you know, yeah, what, what happened, yeah. What, what happened which is New which flows into that same exactly yeah, yeah. yeah what happened with yeah. New Jack Swing and, yeah um you know Bobby Brown's breakout yeah, record yeah um Jam and Lewis yeah like so I was, I was getting into all that stuff yeah and then at the same time getting heavily into native tongues hip hop yeah so it was this kind of two things that were, they both resonated with me immediately and they were as far away from what my dad wanted as possible. Yeah. So I remember there was a record store in Auckland called 246 and every day after school I'd catch the bus into the city, go to 246 or every Friday and see what new stuff would come in and, you know, buy another different remix of Eric B and Rakim paid in full mm-hmm. or, you know, got all my essentials, my you know, NWP, my, my NWA and Public Enemy yeah, and yeah, yeah. Productions and got into yeah. all that. You know, my Tribe and Jungle Brothers. Digital Underground was huge for me. And I remember I'd like, I'd be playing stuff at home. I remember one day playing Public Enemy, It Takes a Nation of Millions, just blasting that shit, mm. being so into it. Mm. And I didn't hear my dad come home because it was so loud. And so then I'm just in it and then he's standing over me. <laughs> like... <laughs> I'm I'm sort of intrigued by your dad, like oh, from the a, small amount of man. of that we've talked about him. But like, oh you know, like he sounds fascinating. He sounded like a um, he was a, a a pretty interesting dude. What was your overall relationship with him like? Because you're telling stories about him bossing you into the. I mean, you're telling them fondly, but you're telling stories about him bossing yeah. you on the, about on the piano and not being into some of the music you rebelled. But you guys were close. No. I mean, he yeah. was, he was, um, I like to say he was Victorian. Right. Like, you know, he was raised by yeah. old school. So almost a man out of time, you know. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then, check this out, for the real man out of time shit. <laughs> yeah. So he goes to Japan. Then he turned Japanese. Right? <laughs> yeah. In 1954. Mm. Right. He leaves in 73. Mm. He missed the 60s in the West. Yes. And then he comes back to New Zealand in the early 70s, self-made Japanese wife, but because he missed the 60s, the 70s didn't mean anything. Mm. So he's still basically rocking the 50s. Mm. So me and my brother, brothers were raised in an environment where it's like, you know, pretty much children are to be seen and not heard, speak when spoken to. Um, you know, the wife must always side with the husband because that's her job. It was really old school. Mm. And he wasn't, he wasn't warm. He was a complete workaholic. He... Um, he suffered a, a massive financial loss when I was about 10. And I didn't know that pretty much from then to when he died, he was depressed. Right. You know, I, as a teenager, I thought he was an asshole. But what I didn't know is what he, he was actually being he was he was depressed. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, we, one of my brothers had a worse relationship with him and right. one of them had a better one. So I was kind mm, of in the middle. In the middle. But he, you know, musically, he, once I really found my direction, he really, he, he just didn't get it. Like he, even when I was doing jazz records, he'd come to gigs and I remember after one, we used to play at the Spot Manifesto in Auckland. He came over to me after the gig, he's like, Mark, I, I just don't know why you have to have drum solos. It's <laughs> like, okay. And then a few years later, I did the Six Degrees album and I was playing it at home and there's one tune particularly, it's called El Dia Perfecto, yeah. which is, it's melody driven, mm-hmm. right? And it's playing. And my dad's just like, this, this isn't music, there's no melody. And I'm thinking, but that's, that's like a melody. But because the drums were in the front of the mix, he couldn't hear it. 
But were you ever like, well, here's the thing, Dad. The next time you make a fucking record, <laughs> with, not not just with my dad, right? Um, but with you know, with people, I'm sort of like, well. You know, next time you're doing a podcast, you do it your way. The next time, right? A little bit, you know. And I, I know we can't all be like that. We, you know, I do take on feedback, yeah. but, and we all have to. And that's a that's a, an ever learning process. But there is something about when people who don't do what you do, right? Especially when they're related to you. Yeah, my dad wasn't open to feedback. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, it doesn't sound like it. But open to giving it. Very oh, open yeah. to giving it. Oh, he gave a lot of <laughs> unsolicited advice. Yeah. I mean, I think it's... But it's, so he did get to see you have some success or some or some application of the talent. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah. And, and for my parents, you know, success was measured in newspaper articles. Yeah. Um, and so they got that. Yeah. And, and physical CDs. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. here's a CD... Here's an article from the New Zealand Herald. It's all good. Yeah, you know, yeah, all, yeah. all like all their friend call up being like, "Oh, I heard Mark on Radio New Zealand." Yeah, they love yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. But that's, I mean, my parents were proudest of me when I was on the Good Morning TV. Exactly, show. it's probably yeah. the lamest thing I've ever done in terms of. <laughs> no, I mean I loved it. Everyone on the show was great. But as in far terms, as highlights in, of your career, well, in terms uh, of doing something meaningful as a yeah. critic, I I did it because I got asked to do it, and I thought fuck, that'll be interesting. Yeah. And maybe that'll be a better paycheck than what I'm getting. And it was. Uh-huh. And so those were reasons enough to do it. And yeah. it was great. And I say, the cast the cast and crew, the people I dealt with, was they were great. Yeah. But, yeah, did I, you know, you held up a CD and basically went, this is out now, you should check it out. You didn't get, you didn't get to actually <laughs> get create it. something, yeah. you know, really explore something. Yeah. It was pretty token. But, mm-hmm. but they could, my mum could say to other people that watched the show, my son's on that. Totally. So I get why they were into it. You know, my yeah. mom, you know what my mum, what my mum does now? <laughs> like, like when Heritage came out earlier this year, yeah. she goes to Marbex like this record store oh, it takes in, up the counter. In, in New Zealand and she, yeah. and she looks for it yeah. and she, then she has to ask for it yeah, yeah. and they're like oh we can order it in for you you know what's your name and she, this, is, this is a whole game she plays <laughs> right she's waiting and for that and she's like oh Toshiko de Clive Lowe it's like oh oh you related yeah <laughs> and then she gets to tell the whole story yeah like, yeah it's like, wow, are you going to do this every record? Like, <laughs> oh, that's sweet, though, isn't it? It's so sweet. It's really cool. But I kind cool. of wonder, too, if it's dark, I've clocked it, I'd be like, oh, yeah, here yeah. comes oh, here she comes. again. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or Mark just put out a record. His mum should be coming around the corner. <laughs> Gosh, that's funny. But that's lovely, though. Like, no, you know, she's that, very that's, sweet. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she was also highly instrumental in getting me performing in Japan. Right. Like, I was going to say, what's her deal with music? Like, what's So it? she... She likes to say that I got my music from her side of the family, <laughs> but she's definitely, bless her, she's not musical. Mm. But her mother sang traditional Japanese folk opera. It's called No, N-O-H. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish I'd had more time for that because I loved my grandma, but at a young age, No, it deals with a lot of quarter tones and really weird, weird melodies. So as a, as a, as a child, I was like, that shit just sounds horrible. Yeah. But now I realise what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would have got into it. But um, but where, she, where my mum really helped, I mean, she would take me to piano lessons when I was starting. So she was the, my dad never took me one time. Mm, he just told you to do it. Exactly. She was the, she had to, she she, was the facilitator. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then in like 90, 96, I recorded my first record. It was a trio album. I did it here in New Zealand. And it was, you know, I, we had a little independent label mm. put it out here. Um, but then there was an opportunity to play in Japan 
My mother, my mother was involved with a thing called the New Zealand-Japan Friendship Association. It's like a cultural exchange thing and trade, trade conversation organization. And um, basically, long story short, that ended up giving me the opportunity to play at the New Zealand, New Zealand Embassy in Tokyo. So then I'd end up playing in Japan. I mean, I played in Japan, apart from New Zealand, Japan's been the place I played the longest. Like my first show, show there was in 96. And that was all off, off her. Mm. Like she was the one who pushed me to that. Mm. And then ironically, she was like, oh, if you're going to play in Japan, you have to play some Japanese music. And I was like, you know, 22, I was like, I'm not playing some Japanese music, are you kidding me? And she kept pushing the point. So I remember going through all the folk songs I knew and ones I didn't know. And I was, fi- I was looking for things, you know, I was playing jazz piano trio, piano mm. bass drums. Mm. So I was looking for things where the melody, I could take it and adapt it and make it to what I deemed a hip arrangement. Like, I can make this like an Amajamal trio thing or like an Oscar Peterson trio thing. Mm. So I didn't actually, I couldn't care less about the origin of the music. It was just a motif I could flip. Mm. And then I, the irony being, you know, 20 some years later, that's become the whole basis of a project. And mm. I'm really, I'm really understanding and appreciating where that music's come from and how that's a big part of my my story. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And but also like um, you know the Heritage Project. It's it's outside of that. It's got that, I guess, kind of future jazz feel uh-huh. that that sits outside of of the tradition. So that's kind of an interesting assemblage as well. For sure. I mean, that's that's I'm I'm, I'm, I'm at this point I'm trying to make records that are just. And, and a reflection of my life, mm, you know, mm. and and my a sort of ultimate cosmopolitan, <laughs> appro- you know, approach in a way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, London was so pivotal. Japan's been pivotal. The States mm. has been pivotal. New Zealand's obviously been pivotal. And I feel like I've found a way to express all these things in different ways at different times in a very nat- natural way for me. So we talked about your mum and dad. Where are you at with your other brothers, and what do they what do they get up to? Like, and when do they? You said one of them had no real massive facility for music, so they give it away. Yeah. So pretty. The, the middle softly. brother. I was, I'm the youngest. The middle one um, is the minute he could leave home, he left home, and the minute he left home, he he, he didn't have to do what he's told. So yeah, music went away. Um, he was really into the Smiths. Um, Morrissey, The Cure. I think my appreciation for The Smiths and The Cure is through him. Well, no, I think it is, totally. Mm, mm. Um, he passed away, like, maybe five years ago. Um, and then my eldest brother, he was... I thought he was such a talented piano player. Like, right. I just... I kind of wanted to be my big brother. Right. And then he got to a point where he... He was doing gigs in Auckland and stuff, and he decided one day that he didn't have the personality type required for a life in professional, as a professional life in music. So he basically quit and it became a real back burner hobby and he went into the diplomatic corps firstly. And at this point he has, you know, he, he dabbles around. Right. But he was definitely, I mean, he gave me Amar Jamal The Awakening, which to this day yeah, is one right. of my favorite yeah, yeah. records. And he yeah. gave it to me, I was really young. Yeah. So he was he was really pivotal like that, but then it wasn't long till yeah, he was in Japan working at the New Zealand Embassy, and I went there. I guess when I was at school there, and there was this huge outdoor festival called Under the Stars, and it was outside of Tokyo on the side of a mountain, where the audience is sitting from the top of the mountain down, and the stage is at the bottom, mm. and the lineup was the Aldi Miola group. The Pat Metheny group, 
and VSOP. And VSOP was why I wanted to be there. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the Miles tribute band. Yes. That, that was the Miles Quintet. Basically, yeah. But instead that's of great. Miles, it was Wallace Roney. Yeah. And they put out a record called, called Tribute to Miles. That's right. Yeah. That was the tour I saw before the record came out. And so they were playing last. And I remember, like, that, the only reason I wanted to be there was for that. And I was, you know, 17. At, at an age, you couldn't tell me shit. Yeah. So I was like, fuck, I've got to sit through this fucking Aldi Miola group and fucking Pat Matheny. And, and I mean, now I appreciate the Matheny group. Yeah, yeah. But at the time, it was like... So what? Yeah, yeah it just sounded super white to me and mm-hmm. like, like, meh. And I remember when VSOP came on and the crowd just went bonkers, like, you know, 15,000 people. And then they were, they were dead silent down this whole valley of the mountain and you hear one Japanese person go... We rub you, hobby. <laughs> <laughs> and they just killed it. Yeah. But I remember talking to my brother after that, and he was like, oh, yeah, that was a bit out, a bit way out for me. You know, for him, Matheny, yeah. Matheny Group was pushing it. That was his right. sweet yeah, spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for me, I was like, well, BSOP was the start of my sweet spot. Yeah. So I recognized that we had different tastes. Yeah. But he definitely was huge in introducing me yeah. to a lot of music. Yeah, it's funny that with... Um, with Big brothers, I think, yeah. particularly, I'm sure, and other families for big sisters and stuff. But I, right. didn't, I didn't have that, so I just have one brother, and he was older, and uh-huh. his musical taste is a lot less diverse, eclectic than mine. But several key things, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I've got him to thank for a love supreme, and that almost is enough. That's, that's enough. That's almost that is enough. That's a lot. <laughs> but that, that's right. Like I'm still, I'm still wrestling with that. I'm still yeah. coping with that. That, yeah. that still blows my mind. You mm-hmm. know, it's still one of the ones that mm-hmm. I um, can play. You know that Beastie Boys record up there, Paul's yep. Boutique, which I discovered myself. That I can play that every week. Of course. And there are only a ha- a small handful of records like that. Yeah. And uh, Love Supreme is definitely one of them. Mm. You know. So, but even just some of the more obvious classic rock yeah. stuff, he still got to it first. So that yeah. was significant. You know, like yeah, yeah, Led like Zeppelin's and the Doors and yeah. stuff. It was really crucial. It's really yeah. important. Yeah. I, I definitely got Bowie from my brothers. Yeah. Probably the Beatles. Um, Style Council. <laughs> yeah. my, my big brother gave me the Cafe Blur record. Oh yeah, that's a great um, record though. And then the neighbours, like when I was little, when I was about eight, I was really, really into horse riding. And one of the neighbours was the daughter was. I mean, she was a, she was a horse rider. So maybe I just got into it because I went with them every weekend. But every day we drive from Parnell to Howick every weekend to go horse riding, and every time. The dad played Grace Jones Nightclub. Oh yeah. That was the soundtrack to going horse riding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, things like that, you never forget that. Mm. And I, I mean that, that Yeah, they become like olfactory senses. You you yeah. tri- trigger moments. Exactly. Now, the word trigger of course now is only seems to be used for bad, but it used right. to be a good thing and it's good, like good, I, good I, call, I still, good call. I still think of how like I I still call those trigger moments yep. meaning you know, meaning the good things. for good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean that rec- that record especially like you know, at this point, I can go back to them, and you know what Wally Bataru contributed to that music was just incredible. He's like mm. the Bernie Worrell of Jamaican, mm. Jamaican music, mm. like, mm. It's, and it's amazing thinking, wow, I was soaking that up back then, and now I know why I liked it. There were certain things I was hearing that mm. made sense. Mm. Mm. Yeah, man. So, tell me a bit about this, this yeah, this kind of Auckland scene that kind of blows up well, the, in the nineties. The first Auckland scene I was part yeah. of was interesting because 
Oh, I've never told this story, I don't think. So, I... When my friend Joe turned my world upside down playing me New Jack Swing, yeah. and then I got into all this music, I went and bought a keyboard and a sequencer and a drum machine, and I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> but I was just like... Making, you were going to do something. <laughs> making loops and making music, yeah. and I remember I handed in a composition assignment at school for music where I had a tape recording of this thing I sequenced and the software could print out the score. Mm. And I remember the score just being craziness, <laughs> but I handed that in and the teacher had to give me an A basically yeah, for yeah, the yeah. effort if nothing else. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I started making these little loops and stuff and kind of performance pieces. And I was living in Koei by then. And there's a college they sell on college around the corner from our house. And at the stadium there, they had a, like a, I can't remember what it was called, but like some kind of talent contest. Mm, mm. I guess maybe what now would be Rock Quest or something. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Whatever it was then. And I was like, I'm going to go and do my keyboard thing. So like I entered, I took my keyboard and my sequence and my drum machine mm. and I did this weird solo. I don't, even know, I don't even know what it sounded like. It probably sounded like, you know, John Tesh meets Jean-Michel Jarre <laughs> with some demented drum programming. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of curious to hear Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, but, yeah. But I remember for some reason, like, you know, I'd, I'd read Keyboard Magazine and they'd do a focus on, say, John Tesh. Yeah, yeah. And they'd break down a musical thing. And so I'd learn that. And, you know, I didn't know who John Tesh was. Yeah. I was like, okay, here's some information. So it was this weird Frankenstein of what I was exposed to. And so I did this solo performance and I didn't do anything in the, like, in the contest. It was like, whatever. But these kids came up to me and they were like all, uh, some of kids, and they were like, bro, that was, I love what you do, bro. It's yeah. like, you know, you know, we make music and we're going to perform and you know, check us out. Right, right. So they, they performed and I thought, wow, they're really dope. That's like, they were singing, dancing, doing kind of New Jack Swing style stuff. So they were a group called Semi MCs. Yeah. They were very nude at that point. And so um, James Waterhouse, who was the lead vocalist, James was like, and his sister Anna, who was hanging out, they were like, man, you know, come and have, come and hang with us. So I can't remember if they were in, if they were in Otaro or some, so somewhere in South Auckland. Mm. So my mum drove me out there and, and um, bless her. <laughs> I know that would have been hard for her. <laughs> and then I, and I hang out with these kids. And it was the first time I'd hung out with, people my age who were into music I was interested in but they were making it mm. and they were good mm. and so there was this um, guy Hiram Benton who was making all the music for them and so they were already a self-contained band there wasn't really somewhere for me to fit in but I met this DJ named Ned Roy through that who was at the time the D New Zealand DMC scratch champion and so we gelled and then semi-MCs were part of a collective called the Voodoo Rhyme Syndicate and the, this guy um, Andy Van hooked it up just basically to mentor and create an umbrella for all these South Auckland hip-hop and R&B groups. And so it was at the, at the time like Upper Hut Posse were mm. really hitting. And this was kind of Auckland's kind of answer to that, mm. that, time, in, that time in music. So I ended up, um, I was with Semis for a bit, then we formed a new band with Sonny Sagala, who'd become Dehamo. Like, he and I and his brother and Ned Roy had a band called Select One. And we're trying to do... We're trying to be Belle of, Belle of DeVoe, basically. <laughs> and then I was working with Sisters Underground. Yeah. And so I was part of this whole movement in, yeah. in early... Like, it was like 1990, 91. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I was making these, you know, different loops and they seemed to fit this 
context and it was cool I was enjoying it we did a show at the power station and put out a bit of music and then one day I woke up I was such an extremist in my youth I woke up and I was like all oh, those fucking loops it's all bullshit that's not real music and so I sold all my equipment <laughs> I sold all my vinyl yeah some specific records I've yeah. never seen again to this day wow yeah um, you know like weird mixes of some Mantronics mm. thing or something and sold it all and it was just me the piano Coltrane and Miles records mm. that was it I was like I went the whole other other direction I was like nah I'm I want to be a jazz musician Mo Better Blues came out around then oh yeah that solidified yeah. it yeah. I was like that shit's too hip I want that yeah you know the, the music in that in that just that was a turning point like it's such an important film that so you know? important yeah that and the movie Crossroads for me oh, the, you know sure. the, yeah. the guitar one yeah that, which is a little comical to some people uh-huh. but but that that kind of on a, a level playing field for me they're really yeah, important right? movies they, they're sort totally. of like your dream big aspirational exactly yeah. And then yeah. Mo Better Blues, I was like, you know, after I saw it, the music just mm. had such an impact on me. I went straight out the day after I saw it and bought exactly. the soundtrack. Exactly. I went yep. out the next day, bought the soundtrack. Yep. I was like, oh, Branford Marsalis Quartet <laughs> yep. featuring Terence Blanchard. Yeah. Or Quintet or whatever. Okay. Yeah. And then Branford had a record out at the same time called Crazy People Music. Yep. So I bought that. And, oh, my God, that those two records, like the piano player Kenny Kirkland to this day yes. became an absolute touchstone for me and I was so lucky to meet him before he died and just thank him like the drummer on those records is Jeff Watts so, I mean, yeah, he's Bob Hurst on yeah, bass and, yeah. and it's amazing like I couldn't have I couldn't have possibly known what was to come in my future but like I was I was at a gig in LA maybe last year it was a Bob Hurst show and Bob was at the bar and I went over to him I was like Bob oh man I just want to say hello I'm Mark Mark the Clive Lowe he's like I know who you are <laughs> Wow! I was like, yeah. dang, this is a guy I was listening to. I, I was like, gonna, I was gonna say when you were talking about the experience of seeing some of those things like VSOP and stuff in Japan, I was gonna say like, not only have you seen some of your heroes, we'll get to more of this, but you've obviously met oh, and yeah. played with, oh yeah, or or spoken to, yeah, oh, and yeah. then there you go. You've not only met and spoken to one of your heroes, but they've acknowledged you as yeah. someone they're not just a fan. They no, know your music, so it's, it's very humbling. Yeah, that's amazing. But also, also like a a reflection that yeah, you're on the right track. Yeah, you're in the right place in the universe and your timeline. So, do you think? I mean, sort of a side note here, but I've always had this feeling that Branford is a little underappreciated or a little under the radar or do you, you know he's not under the radar I, 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 that's what I know it's crazy but, to say well, I, that but you know, I, you know I, what I, I mean I know what though. you mean and I, I went to see the, the quartet the current quartet um, late last year and it was actually the first time I'd seen him since Kenny Kirkland died right. like I saw yeah. that quartet a few times and I, I had a problem with the new quartet just because it wasn't the old quartet and mm. I was like I gotta get over this shit and go see him play mm. it was literally the highest level of improvised music possible. Like, it was... It was transcendentally good. Yeah. And... I guess I just mean he's he's always going to be a little in the shadow of his... Yeah, I mean, Winton kind not of Not just his brother, but the whole family in a way. Right. But, but, but Winton but especially has yes. the brand yes. thing, you know, like the Lincoln Center thing. And, That's right. And he's like and the, the, historian, the mouthpiece the, for... Yeah. But, you know, Branford's been mouthpiecing recently. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, Kamasi Washington, he's not a jazz saxophone player. Robert yeah. Glasper, that's not jazz. And, yeah, yeah, I you know, saw that. He's, he's, been, he's been speaking up. But um, he also, I mean, 
I mean, what do you think of that Buckshot LaFont record? I loved that at the time. I loved it at the time. Yeah, I'm sure it, it, has, hasn't, it hasn't aged well. It won't have, but I loved it. But you know, some other the, records at the time, like the Groove Collective album, yeah. the first record, is, yeah. to me that's timeless. Yeah. But the Buckshot LaFont is not. But it's a lot better than Miles Davis' Dubov. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which, you know, I just that wrote... That was a travesty, I, man. I just wrote about it the other week because it was kind of my introduction to Miles. Oh, no. So, I know. So I, I love it on, yeah. on one level, but, yeah. I, but I understand that it's ghastly, you know? But, it's, it's garbage. But, you know, <laughs> that's right. But that and, like, Quincy Jones is back on the block and all that sort of stuff uh-huh. that was happening. I, I kind of think Buckshot LaFont's better than any of that stuff, which is not th- necessarily I, giving up... I think up. back on the block is, is valid. Well, that's... Yeah. That's, I, that's, yeah. There's, there's, there's some cuts on there. Mm. But, no, I, I, yeah, Buckshot LaFont was a defining moment in... It has more, it has more jazz in it than yep. those other other things is yeah. what I mean so yeah. so it has that you know he, he does play to his strength like yeah. he was curi- trying to be curious and probably trying to be commercial mm-hmm. and all of that mm-hmm. but throughout that record it does keep coming back to jazz as a hook yeah he's a sax player and he's like, a great jazz sax player he's yeah. incredible yeah, yeah. I've, never, I've never had the chance to see him he played when he played in Wellington a f- well probably a decade ago uh-huh. now um, I got banned from Jazz shows for <laughs> reviews that I'd written of because oh, no. I because I called out the Yellow Jackets for being shit. All the jazz fans in Wellington got upset and wrote to the paper, and I got my tickets taken off me. Oh mate! So maybe that's why I'm crusading that Bramford's underappreciated because I didn't get to see him. <laughs> maybe I mean, it's I, that. I hope you get to see him someday yeah. because even. I only just got to see Winton a few years ago, right? And it was amazing. It was like, incredible. You know, as, as much as he says dicky things, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. incredible. And he seems to have got a little bit past that now. Well, maybe not. I'll, tell you, di- I'll tell you. I'll tell you my Winton story. Yeah. So there was this club in Auckland Manifesto where um, I was. It was Manifesto was a cafe and under it was a wine cellar, and the owner and I, owner and I became friends. So he showed me the set of the wine cellar one day. I was like, man, I want to do a jazz gig here. And we ended up making it into a jazz club. Mm. So if I wasn't playing, I was booking it. And so one night I'm booking it. I was just hanging out there. I can't remember who was playing. Mm. And Winton had played the Lincoln, the Lincoln Center Orchestra at the ATS Center. So they came down afterwards to chill. Mm. So firstly, the, the band members who came down are up the front sitting down, in my opinion, heckling the band. Like, it wasn't cool. Right, yeah. And then Winton's sitting at the back. And I was like, that's fucking Winton Marcellus. So I go over to him. And um, he's got an album called Black Codes from the Underground. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is one of my desert island yeah. absolutes. Same. And so I went over to him. I was like, man, you know, Winton, my name's Mark. I just want to say hello. And I just want to tell you, man, Black Codes changed my life. This motherfucker. <laughs> he looks up from his drink. He's like, man, I'm sorry about that. And goes back to his drink. Oh, no. <laughs> and maybe he was having a shit day. Yeah, yeah. But... I have, at this point in my career, I've experienced a lot of people coming to me with similar kinds of conversations. Like, right. you know, that record got me through a really hard time. Yeah. Or, man, I just love this record of yours. Yeah. And I think it's shit, but they're telling me that. I'm not going to say, yeah. you love that, it's shit. You yeah. know, I'm going to yeah. be gracious you about it. indulge them in, in their story. It's exactly. Their, it's their uh, experience yeah. of, of yeah. my expression. Yeah. And I can't, I can't, I, I just look, would never do what he did. You don't pull the rug out. And if yeah. someone said to me, Mark, that record changed my life. Yeah. Oh my God, that's, what a compliment. Yeah. So I don't know what he was going through that day, but I, I'll never But he inflicted that. it on you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well, that's the thing. And, I, and I, with Winton, is I feel like 
you know, he, he was prob- he was getting a lot of grief and, and most of it seemed quite deserved because he was mouthing off. Yeah. And he was being the saviour of jazz and he was deciding who and what, what was, was jazz. What was jazz and totally. what wasn't and all of that. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I used to think, oh, he's a bit of a twit. And that Black Codes record was like oh that and a couple of other things he's done. And obviously there's loads, but that and, that and a handful of other things. Dude, J-Mood like, is an amazing yeah, record. I'm all, I, 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 I suddenly sort of reverted to like, actually, this guy can do what he fucking wants. Like, if he wants to be an arsehole, you know, no one should want to be an asshole. But I was, it was like he's almost earned the right, you know, was how I started to think about I, it. I, I get that, but then with like... You know, say I'm. You know, I live in LA. I love basketball, so NBA is part of what I'm. What I appreciate in in my life right now. Mm. And you know, you got players who who are just notoriously not nice people. Yeah. Who are absolute legend players. Yeah. And then you've got absolute legend players like LeBron James, who are like giving to the community. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's like that's. I think I I, I feel like if you have the good fortune in life to do what you love and especially do it at a high level and even more so get paid for it mm. that you actually have some civic responsibility mm. to to spread love like you can't yeah. be a dick yeah why would you want to be as well exactly like, it's like wait you you play you play trumpet for a living oh wait you shoot yeah. hoops for a living yeah yeah it's like how can you complain like because yeah. on some and on some level like with those particularly with say the NBA they're fucking amazing superstars with freakish talent. Yeah. They're still being paid way too much. And they're paying, being paid a lot. And yeah. they know that. Yeah. You know, and the good ones, yeah. like LeBron, yeah. he knows that, you know. Yeah, what, what's like, he what am I going to do with all this money? So he's doing good with it, that's exactly. right. And that's fucking yeah. cool. Yeah. Like, you know, and you can either be public about that or not, and even when you try not to be, people are going to find Someone's out and make it public out. for yeah. you and that. So that becomes yeah. a whole juggling act. Yeah. But... That alone wouldn't be the reason to not do it, to go, oh, it's too hard, I don't want to be bugged. Yeah. Like, and so, yeah, people like him are amazing. That are just but then like, when I hear stories about, like, Kobe, for example, yeah. who was, he's an incredible basketball player. Yes. And I, I watch, I watch like, video of him, I'm like, dang, that's a superhuman. Yeah. But then I'm like, but at the same time, I mean... So were you always a basketball <laughs> dude, or is it LA that's brought it out? I, I loved it here. Like, I, yeah. when, you know, growing up in Auckland... In basketball, that was the golden age. That was Jordan, yeah. Magic Isa- Johnson, Isaiah. Yeah, Larry Bird, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Charles Barkley. Carl Malone. That was the time. The dream team yeah. era. See, I was way into that. And then, yeah. I, then I sort of dipped out for a while, and I'm sort of getting back into it again yeah, I dipped now. Out, I, I dipped out for a bit, but then when yeah. I moved there, yeah. and um, my son just got really attracted to basketball. Mm. So when we moved to L.A., I took him to both of our first Lakers game. Mm. It was actually two games, like the Jazz, like Clippers played Jazz in the first game, and then Lakers played the Rockets in the second game. And I remember, you know, when the Lakers came out and Kobe was still playing. For me, you know, the Beatles might as well fucking walked yeah. out. Yeah. It was like I'd seen this on on TV, but now here I am in LA, Staples Center, home of the Lakers, and here yeah. the Lakers. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah, incredible. So. Um, let's let's get you to let's get to where you get overseas. So you travel a bit, you know. As I say, you're experienced as a traveller. Yeah. But what makes you disappear the first time? Well, the, the, significantly for music. What the, the first time that felt significant, mm. although it wasn't as significant, was when I went to the Berklee College of Music in Boston, and that was '94, and four of us went. One, two, three, four from Auckland. Uh, Matt Penman. Yeah. 
who is an astounding bass, bass player, player yeah. playing with the very you know he one of his gigs last year was he subbed for John Patitucci in the one shorter quartet <laughs> wow it's like if you're the yeah. first call yeah. like it doesn't get any better and we had that quartet out here a couple yeah. of years ago and it's like oh, that's that's art you know that is art I mean Brian Blade is, oh, is the guy for me Blade's like, ridiculous everyone in that band is just top of the game yeah so yeah. to be even anywhere near them let alone feels right. cool eh? yeah. and so there was Matt there was Greg Tui yeah. um, guitar player um, he's doing great work with Aaron Parks his little big project oh, yeah. now um, and then Jason Jones great sax player yes. um, and Jason was the one who kind of came back and stayed here but we were all playing together and we all as young jazz musicians were aspiring to be in America the easiest way to be there was to be a student so we all got scholarships to go to Berkeley and, and we went up, went over there. And that felt huge. Um, but after one semester, I just, I guess I was a little anti-authoritarian, or anti-authoritarian, is mm. the word? Mm. Um, I just didn't like being told how to learn and what to learn. Yeah. In hindsight, I should have just shut up and been humble and learned. But you're describing a lot of people's, I mean, you, you just in what you said then, you might as well be describing my approach to my... Right silly old undergraduate degree in Wellington exactly you know? there like, we go it's just age and stage stuff and I yeah. I wonder if males in particular right you know we, we, we've particularly people of our era we, uh-huh. had, we had a pretty good run you know like we were, <laughs> we were sort of like able to get away with a bit more and be a bit nonchalant and quite possibly yeah, you know yeah. so you know if I had my time again I would have put my fucking head down and, and there we and go actually exactly got through it quicker because I was a dick you know but like after for me after the first semester it was the start of the second semester, and I remember finding out, like, I was on a 50% scholarship, and the school was expensive, and I found out what my refund would be on the other half if mm. I dropped out, mm. like, that week. And I was like, wow, cool, I'm going to drop out. So I dropped out the second semester, but I stayed on campus, so I go to the jam sessions, my private piano teacher still taught me, and you know, he's, this guy, his name's Ray Santisi, and he was cool, but what turned me with him was, in a good way... I was reading Keith Jarrett's book and Keith basically, I'm totally paraphrasing, he said, Berkeley sucked. The only good thing was my teacher, Ray Santisi. And that day I had a lesson with Ray. Wow. So I went to the lesson, I was like, wait, we're not playing piano today. I need to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you talk Keith Jarrett. Yeah. Um, so that was cool. But then at the end of that, um, Matt and Greg moved to New York. Jason and I came back to New Zealand and my plan was I'm going to be back in Auckland for three months and then I'm moving to Sydney. You know, Sydney's always had a very vibrant jazz scene, largely based around Mike Knock and mm. his contribution to the culture mm. there. Um, so I that, love Mike Knock. Mike's amazing. I met Mike a couple of years ago. I, podca- I did a podcast amazing. with him and, and um, I had been watching him whenever he had come here. Yeah. And when I emailed him to ask him, I felt like I was sending an email off to Miles Davis or something. Yeah. I was like, you know, he's not going to reply. Right. He's not going to. And he wrote not. back the next day yeah. and was like, yeah, man, let me know when you're in town and we'll, and we'll hook up. And I was like, what the fuck? You know, you know? People, people don't realize yeah. how influential he was. Yeah. Like things like. Unreal. Things like the ring modulator, ring, yeah. using a ring modulator on a Rhodes. Yeah. He did the that. The whole kind of fusion. And then Zawin yeah. was influenced by that. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. Like, yeah. he was hugely influential. In, in lots of different pockets, right? Yeah. So the whole fusion kind of yep. thing. Yeah, the Yusuf Latif band yeah, before yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Solo stuff, obviously, yep. you know. Yep. And then, yeah. 
amazing. Yeah, incredible. Oh, and I had, I mean, I had an amazing afternoon with him in Sydney, yeah. and he's just like, you know, shall I make you some soup? And it's like, oh, yes, please. You know, when, I, don't, I just I, want to hang out him, with you. When you I saw him in Sydney in the late 90s mm. at a gig I was doing, and um, I'd just gotten into some of his kind of fusion records, and I was asking him about them and the synths, and he's yeah. like, man, what are you, are you, are you into that shit? <laughs> yeah. Like, just disparagingly. Like, uh, yeah, I like it. You know. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not? <laughs> kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, um, but anyway, so I was going to move to Sydney. And then I was in Auckland and I, I, I had to play. So, and there wasn't a welcoming environment for that. Mm. It was definitely an old boys kind of circuit. Yeah. Which I didn't really want to play in anyway. Um, and I was... Safe. Well, I, I think... I was way too arrogant yeah. beyond my ability. Yeah. But I was like, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do my own shit. Yeah, yeah. And so I basically started, you know, producing shows. And I ended up, you know, doing really well with that in Auckland. And, you know, gigging a lot. Had my own band. I was writing a lot of music. I started recording. And then I just forgot about Sydney. And it wasn't actually until... So this is like 94, 95... Like, this is mid-1995 I came back. And then in 97, well, around that time also, Nathan had been doing the Freebase band yeah. at Core yeah. Celeb, and then he moved to London, so there was a gap there. So I took over that gig yeah. and did my own approach to, you know, yeah. what I love about club music and jazz and kind of jam band vibe. Mm. Um, and actually, no, I remember, I remember now, I was playing with, I was playing the Auckland Town Hall doing a jazz gig, like suited and booted, mm. Kim Patterson on trumpet. And I remember mid-show thinking, man, I'm so serious about these jazz gigs, but those kind of what I called funk gigs, mm, of course, mm, mm. like, but I have so much fun doing the funk gigs. Why don't, I, why don't I be more serious about the funk gigs? And fuck this jazz thing, kind of. So I had this moment while I'm playing a jazz gig, like at the town <laughs> hall. Um, and that changed my focus a bit. You know, Jungle was happening, and that totally captured my imagination mm. in a big way. Um, and so, 1997, I was playing a lot around Auckland, different projects, and I was dating the girl, my, my girlfriend at the, t- at the time. She was going to the UK for a year in 98. So I was like, well, if you're going to go overseas, I'm going to travel overseas. So I applied... This is, this is funny, like, I, I often say that my path in life, my golden path, as I step forward, the path just appears under my feet. Mm. And this is one of those moments, I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go overseas. So I applied for the Young Achievers Award, which is long gone, mm-hmm. but was an amazing yeah. um, corporate-funded initiative where they would take applications from young New Zealanders, I think you had to be under 26, and you could be in any field and you proposed a project and if you if you win the award they funded your project yeah so I won the award and in my year there was an Olympic equestrian a nuclear physicist a, a ballet dancer <laughs> I remember I, the ads for it vividly right yeah, yeah Nathan Haynes was telling me that John Schofield wrote him a letter of support for it exactly that's the kind it's of thing it's just incredible right? yeah yeah but so and that so, brought it back too yeah so my project yeah, yeah. this is the audacity I had to <laughs> my project was to spend one year going around the world just experiencing and pursuing music. <laughs> and they funded it. Wow. So, you know, my, my targets were Cuba, New York, 
San Francisco for some reason and Tokyo. Those were my main targets. But because of my girlfriend, I routed the, the flight through London as much as possible. So then, so, so the year starts and she, maybe she left in like March and by April when I was leaving, we'd broken up. I was like, ah, oh, fuck. And then, so I go to San Fran, that, that was really cool. Um, I heard, I remember being in a club in San Francisco hearing Jazz and Over for the first time. Right. Being like, what is this? <laughs> Caravelle or Fading's Flight, one of their early tunes. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is like club music I can really get into. And then I went to Cuba and mind blown. Like I'd never been anywhere in my life where the, the land breathes music, like literally. And then I'm, you know, I'm talking to my, I was doing a homestay, like I guess, you know, an Airbnb 20 yeah. years before Airbnb yeah. happened, whatever. And I was saying to the, the, the host person there, I was like, you know, I, I love like Chucho Valdez, like a piano player. And she's like, oh, Chucho, yeah, I, I translated for his last tour. It's like, wait, can you get me an introduction? So the next day I'm in Chucho Valdez's house, you know, just talking about music. And he was so cool. Amazing. I, mean, I, I was there for maybe three hours. I saw him 20 years later. He's like, Mark, how wow. are you? You know, amazing. Yeah. But so Cuba was dope. But then I was supposed to go to London after that. I think that. he was here the same jazz festival as we saw Wayne Shorter, actually. Oh, yeah, quite recently. possibly. Yeah, and it was amazing. But yeah. So I was supposed to go from Cuba to London. Yeah. The original plan to see my girlfriend, who's now my ex. But I was like, nah, why go to London? <laughs> I've got a, an ex I kind of want to see in Vancouver. So why don't I go there instead? But I'm in Cuba. Very early internet days. In Cuba, even earlier, right? So my, this host woman who's looking after me, we, we did some James Bond shit. She snuck me into a government office after hours. <laughs> and while she was the lookout, I was on a computer terminal trying to get online to change my flight. <laughs> and we, we didn't get caught and I couldn't change my flight. So I go to London and I had two phone numbers. One was Nathan and one was Dave Angel. Dave Angel is a UK techno DJ producer. And Dave, he, there was a bar in Auckland called Deschler's I used to play at. And he, Dave walks in one time while we're having a break. And he's like, oh, whose roads is that? Oh my God, it's mine. He's like, oh, cool. Man, here's my number. Give me a call if you ever come to London. <laughs> he didn't even hear me play, right? He just saw that I had a road. He's a dude with the roads. <laughs> right. So then five years later, I'm like, oh, I guess I might use that number. So I call up Dave Angel. And I was like explaining the backstory. Yeah. He's like, oh, come down to the studios in Swindon, outside of London. And so I went down, he picked me up. And we laughed about it later because he was saying, until the moment we saw each other at the train station, he had no idea who the fuck I was. <laughs> and he was like, oh, that dude. Yeah, classic. So then my first session in the UK was for a Dave Angel track. And I called Nathan the next week and he, he was like, oh, cool, I'm going to do a session for Metalheads now. Do you want to jump in? So I jumped on the track with Nathan and A-Sides, a Cyclone track for, for Goldie's label for Metalheads. And that was my first week. And then Nathan's like, oh, my boy, my friend Phil Asher, he's spinning this party, you should come. So I went, and then Phil and Patrick Forge, two great DJs, they had a party called Inspiration Information. And they were playing to the dance floor, like Gene Harris and like Mongo Santa Maria and all the stuff I hadn't heard in that context. Yeah, yeah. Blew my mind. You know, I went to went to Giles Peterson's club night. I walk in, he's playing Freddie Hubbard Gibraltar, and the club's packed full of beautiful girls and boys dancing. Mm. I was like, what is this? 
So London very quickly became like, okay, I need to be here. But I was on this Young Achievers Award, so I had to keep moving. Mm. So I went to New York, which was always my goal. I'm going to live in New York. Went to New York. I had a crazy session with like, Phil Asher gave me Joe Clausel's number, who's a great DJ producer. Mm. And so I hit up Joe. We had a meeting. I played him some stuff I'd done. He's like, I hear where you're coming from. And then he calls me a week later to go in studio and work on a, on a Cesaria Evora track. And so I go in, it's a beautiful roads, beautiful studio. Joe's there. He's like, oh, this is, this is Francois. He's the engineer. I'm like, cool. Hi, Francois. And I did the track. And then over the course of the session, I realized that Francois was someone, but I didn't know who. So then I realized, I find out he's Francois K. Francois Kevorkian. I'm like, okay, it's just... <laughs> I'll store that. Yeah. You know, get back to wherever I'm staying and look him up. It's like, holy <laughs> shit. That engineer yeah. is a legend yeah. in the game. <laughs> and I thought he was just the engineer. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out it was his studio. Yeah. You know, everything. His label. Yeah. Put out the record. And, um, so that was cool. But I, by then, my original vision of going to New York and playing with Betty Carter and Art Blakey, I was miles from that by that point. I was like, that's not interesting to me. I just want to go back to London. So I went back to London and reconnected with, you know, Phil, Nathan, Bugs in the Attic, Four Hero, all those guys, and ended up, I had to come home because it was a one-year trip. So I came home through Japan, connected with a whole post-acid jazz crew in Japan, UFO, yeah. um, a group called Jazz Brothers. Bought my first MPC on the way home. I was in a store in Japan looking at these MPCs, it's like a drum machine sampler. Yep. And all the UK guys have been using them, and the guys in the States. I was looking at thinking, do I need this? Nah, yeah, nah, yeah, nah, yeah. <laughs> Ended up buying it, took it back to New Zealand. And then after a year away, being in you know, San Fran, Cuba, London, Paris, New York, and Tokyo, and Sydney, I had all these experiences that I had to make a record. You know, I had music I had to get out of me. Mm. And so I had an apartment in Auckland City, and I remember I had the roads, some shitty synth module in the MPC, and I made all the, I wrote all the music and pre-production, which became Six Degrees. So Six Degrees, as a record, was literally my diary of this year away. And that's your first significant calling card for a lot of people. Yeah, right? and, and, and my international debut. Yeah, 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 so that's what I mean, because of that. Yeah. But So people know you in Auckland, people know you're around New Zealand, but that's... That's the thing where you get really known if you weren't already known, and as you say, yeah. that's your international. Totally. And, 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 and in New Zealand, it became yeah. like around that time the Saint Germain record yeah, was huge. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you couldn't go to a cafe without Henry Rose Rouge. Mm -hmm. Six Degrees became one of those records. Yeah. You know, you could yeah. you, you hit it, you hit it everywhere. Yeah. And um, it was on Cog Transmission. That's right. And they'd done, they hadn't done anything remotely like it. And I remember mm. they were down because I was industrious. And when it came to the record was done, we had a release dinner with all the crew and their girlfriends. I remember one of the guys being like, "Yeah, you know, all the all, all the all the girlfriends really like it." Kind of thing. It's like because it wasn't it was different. What they yeah, were doing. yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were so supportive. Yeah. And then I was like, "Well, I need an international release." So I, you know, again, the internet wasn't what it is today. Mm -hmm. So I got on a plane and went to sell my record. You know, I went to L.A., San Fran, London. And I went door knocking on labels, like with my fucking record in my hand. And quite a few labels were like, yeah, you know, we like these tracks, we'd like to take an EP. I was like, no, nah, not happening. And I went to every label I wanted to work with 
And it was, it was amazing that I was allowed in the door and could actually have these face-to-faces and talk about it and share the music. But nothing was quite right. I go back to New Zealand. And then I get an out-of-the-blue call from a man named Nathan Graves, who was, he's a Kiwi. Um, and he was, at the time, the head of A&R for Universal Jazz in London. And he's like, I don't know how this album came across my desk, but I heard it and I have to sign it, so I want to sign it. And so, having door knocked on all these independent labels, I ended up signing the Universal. Mm. And that was obviously the right time to move to London. I was like, cool, peace, New Zealand, I'm out, things are happening. And, and I do remember after that, seeing like a local boy does good article in New Zealand. I was like, always well, now, the, now, the, you, now you're going to notice. Like. Always the way. <laughs> always the way. But that they was, probably, someone will have saved it, and then when a few years later they could have just changed the names to Brett and Jermaine. Yeah, exactly. And then, exactly. Know, to Peter Jackson. There's and, a template. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but it was amazing being with Universal because, you know, it was before digital happened, so mm. physical was a big deal. Mm-hmm. They, and what would happen was that Universal in each country would take the option on a record or not and release it domestically. So Six Degrees was released in 13 countries domestically with a major label push. At the same time, one track, a DJ Spinner remix of Day by Day, which Shereen Matheson was the vocalist, mm. that got licensed to Café Domar Volume 8, which sold a million copies. And these things don't happen anymore. No, like, no. You know. <laughs> no I remember talking to Ryan Sheehan about that. Having, yeah. you know, he, he had a couple of tracks on a couple of Café Del yeah. and You know, that was a real thing. Like, it was a real... I mean, I was working in the CD store in yeah. those days, so we knew what they did in terms of the traffic they did. Yep. But, but that was good money for you guys. That like, paid was, my rent in yeah. London for quite a few years. Yeah. Like, no question about it. Yeah. So that was... It was a magical time, man. I, yeah. was, I was doing what I wanted to do. I was in a community in London where... I knew what I could contribute, yeah. and I was they, I was appreciated by them. We were all trying to push music forward, like every, you know, it, it was never like you, know, you make a killing track and it's like let's make another one like that. Mm-hmm. It's like no, we made a killing track. Now let's do something different and kill that. And so it's a little bit like um, that that Kamasi Washington model of the last few years of of having the gang of people that all work together and play on each other's records. You, you were sort of part of... I was very a, much part of that. A version of that. Wait, yeah. you know, he sort of brought that back after that disappearing I mean, for a while. I mean, he was doing that at the same time in LA yeah. with those same guys. Yeah, yeah, they all, yeah. They all grew up together, yeah. but no one knew yet. Yeah, yeah, it's right. Now that now it's a yeah. thing and that's part of the marketing. But yeah, for, but for, for me in London, that yeah. was... It was a community. Yeah. And it was all these people was cool because they all came from different genre backgrounds, but they all wanted to challenge those genres and so were consequently rejected by the ousted mm. and became these weird like you know minority you know freaks and we all came together you know like Phil Asher was coming from house music mm. Digo and Mark from 4Hero were coming from drum and bass and rave music you know IG Culture was coming from dub roots reggae and hip hop um, Bugs in the Attic were coming from soul funk but none of us wanted to make those genres we all wanted to Grab from them and yeah, yeah and progress them. So yeah. it became. I, I like to tell people it was, you know, the music that was being made was like a melting pot of everything I've ever loved put together in a way I never imagined was possible. So for me as a as a musician to be in the middle of that was like, I remember waking up every day thinking, you know, today is incredible because by the end of this day, some music will exist that has never existed before, mm. and that was my daily life. That spliff and tick in. Yeah, yeah. You know. And that's, 
It's a good time, man. And that's um, and, and I had two of those three things back then. Right. <laughs> you know, till our PlayStation got stolen. But I had two of those three things. But and I and I guess my version of it was just a kid in a candy store working in a record shop back yeah. here getting the finished product There's of what so you were contributing music. to. Yeah. It was every day I was taking something home mm-hmm. to, to check out mm-hmm. at plus what you played at work. Yep. So that was my version of that. Must have been incredible to actually be at the coalface. Oh, it was magic, man. And, and I was think I've always wanted to ask you, you know, the sheer number of sort of pinch yourself moments you must have had. It was dumb. I mean, yeah. I was, you know, every day I'm in the studio collaborating with people who I consider the very best at what they do. Yeah. And, and we're challenging each other. Every weekend I'm in Europe touring my own projects. Yeah. And then... And then crazy things happen, like one day, um, IG Culture, who's an amazing producer and what a core mm. part of that scene, he put together a jam session with everyone he knew, all the musicians he knew, who didn't know each other. Mm-mm. And I was really sick at the time. I, was in, I remember being in bed, you know, when you have the flu and you have cold sweats and aches and you're, you're not going mm. anywhere for nobody. So IG calls me up. He's like, where are you? I'm like, bro... I'm, I'm sick I I'm sorry I can't make it he's like you got a man like Pino Paladino waiting for you like, fuck I'll, I'll be right there yeah and I saw the Voodoo tour not too long before that and obviously just the records were out you know Voodoo like yeah. the chocolate mama's yeah. gun yeah but seeing Voodoo was life changing like yeah period and so okay so Pino Paladino's waiting in the studio it's okay so I went down and I was in no condition, but you know, music's kind of magical like that. You can be sick and you start playing, and you're miraculous, miraculously cured as long as you're still playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we all, a whole lot of us, played all day. And Pino was so welcoming and so amazing to play with. And then after that, Pino and IG culled all the musicians down to a band for a project. So I was one of those people, and 12 of us, we went in the studio every day for two months. There's about 60 or 70 tracks, and I. To me, it's no exaggeration, and because the stuff never came out, you just have to believe me. Mm. But mm. it would have been the next Soul to Soul. It would have been the next British movement in soul mm. music, like mm. no question about it. However, the person in most control decided that he wasn't going to do anything with it. Yeah. Whatever. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So, but my relationship with Pino came out of that. So to a point where, you know, he, I remember one day he just turns up at the house, at my house, and he had his bass on his back. I'm thinking, I guess we're going to do some music today. Cool. And it's like, you know, basically the greatest bass player alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, at what point in this musical relationship and friendship with someone like that, are you able to go, hey, uh, hey, Pino? You know when you did that Paul Young track? <laughs> you know, are you able to do that? Do you yes. have that conversation? Or do you go, I just, I can't. No, I, I can ask him anything. I mean... But do you but do you do that? Do you go, man, you played on da-da-da? Yeah, yeah like, absolutely. And he'll, you know, he'll talk about yeah. those things. And I mean, I, I had a really great working relationship with Leon Ware before he yeah. passed. And, you know, one time Leon and I took a year to finish a track... Because most of the time, Leon's telling me stories. <laughs> yeah. And if Leon Ware's telling you stories about you Motown, listen. you listen. 
Well, you also, that's, <laughs> that's an education for you oh that pays God. dividends on your yeah. playing. Like yeah. you, and it also goes into the music that you create together that's what as well. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also yeah. the music that you go on to create, oh, absolutely. maybe not even until next year or the year after, let alone absolutely. what's happening now, right? Like yeah. that's the stuff that, that's your real Young Achievers Award yeah. right there. You no, know? Totally. Like, yeah. And I have I had a funny thing with, actually, Pino and there's this drummer named Little John Roberts, who's a really great friend of mine, who he was... He took with Prince and then Janet Jackson was a long-term gig. Yeah. He's just, he's ridiculous. Yeah. But um, I was with, I was in Australia working on a Ross McHenry project and Miley brought up a question and it was about Curtis Mayfield's Move On Up. And there's a musician thing where there's a question of does it start on the one or the three? Mm. And it's a very, you know, it's, it's kind of semantical if you're not a musician, but it makes a world of difference if you are. Yeah, yeah. What beat? the song starts on yeah. and most people think it starts on a certain beat and Miley was adamant it starts on the other one and so this is a car full of accomplished musicians <laughs> yeah. arguing about this yeah. so I'm like guys fuck this I'm going to sort this out so I call <laughs> Pino it's like bro move on up this is starting on 103 he's like oh, come on he tells me it says what it is so let me call John call little John bro move on up 103 and so basically, we had legitimate, you know, shutdowns on the argument. Yeah, yeah. It's like this is what it is. <laughs> so these people know. Yes. No, I'm pleased you were doing the thing I would do if I was there. I would want to ask those, you know. Yeah. You know, and and um, I think it's, you know, it's like when I talk to Mike Knock, it's like, yeah. you know, yeah, we're going to talk about your records, but we're also going to talk about. <laughs> You know who you bumped into, how oh, you. Man, that's just amazing, you know, man. Yeah, that's, 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 the, that's the magic of the tapestry yeah, of life. I yeah. mean, I'm. I've, I've particularly been spoiled with drummers, and I pretty much have gotten to play with most every drummer I would want to play with. Yeah. And a lot of people I grew up listening to. Such as. Well. I mean, I've, I've been in Harvey Mason's band for like six years. Ridiculous. And. You know, I'm, I'm de facto musical director for his band. Yeah. When I first played with him, I was like thinking, he wants all that Herbie shit. So it's like piano yeah, and yeah. Rhodes and try and do my best Herbie impression. And then I called Harvey for one of my shows and I had my whole technology rig with my keyboards. And Harvey's like, man, why didn't you bring that on my gig? Mm. So now I bring that all on his gig and I'm like live processing his drums and we have a duo moment and we have amazing times. And then the, 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 one, of the, one of the first gigs I did with him, we had two keyboard players for a lot of gigs. So I'm sitting on stage, and it was before Kamasi had put out his record, so Kamasi and I are friends anyway. So it's like, this Kamasi. But I'm looking around the stage. It's Harvey Mason, Bill Summers, <laughs> Daryl Jones, Patrice Russian, Kamasi and me. Yeah. It's like, what is this life? Yeah, that's unreal. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, that... 90 seconds, two minutes of um, Harvey Mason and Ralph McDonald yeah. on George Benson's <laughs> on Broadway on the Weekend in LA record. I remember that from about the age of four. Yeah. You know, that's part, that's it. a huge part of my childhood. Yeah. Just that whole album. Yeah. But just that sequence. Yeah. And that's when I learned to 
pick the needle up and have the confidence to pick the needle up and put it back and find the right place. Right, At right, about right, four right. or five years, of, I was allowed to do side by side. Yeah. But it was that. I've got to hear that again. Yeah. I've got to hear that yeah. again. And, and same with, <laughs> I, 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 the other one is a Buddy Rich live mm-hmm. album, but, mm-hmm. um, but, and where he does Norwegian wood. But, yeah. but yeah, that, that, that drum break because it's oh one of the most musical drum breaks. Yeah. You know, how it's just groove. Harvey's and, amazing. Yeah. And he still sounds amazing. Yeah, no, I've listened to a couple of his more recent like, records and things that he's been on the, more recently, yeah. So, and the the records are cool, but, like, live... Oh, I bet. Just, he's ridiculous. Yeah, because he's got... He's one of those guys, I guess, um, different player, but I guess Questlove is a bit like that and that they've got all the chops, mm. but they're not flashy. Right. Until the moment when they you know, want to be. Harvey, Harvey will flash. I mean, he's, the, yeah, yeah, he, but still, he'll sit on. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He loves a groove. Yeah, he yeah, loves yeah. A pocket, like yeah. A, but when it's yeah. when it's, it's time, time to shine, now he'll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. Lights out. Yeah. You know, he was. I mean, Tony, Tony Williams was his favorite drummer growing up, mm, and mm. like when we play jazz stuff, you can hear it. It's like, yeah. dang, like, like Harvey playing jazz is like playing with him doing that is a connection to the lineage, like yes. directly. Yeah. You know, I had that also playing with Ndugu. Wow. I was like, okay, yeah. so this is this is like George Duke's drummer. You know, it's like, this is, this is serious. Mm. And then the, so those older cats I get to play with is cool. Oh, hang on, hang on. I mean, then, I know it's, I know it's not as, not as, not as cool a name drop in that context as it used to be, but it's, the who's dude, that? Ndugu. N- yeah, it's the dude who played, um, you I mean, know. he played the Michael Jackson records. He I mean, that's, play, he played Peter. You yeah, know, to, he played to, Billy Jean. You know, actually, like I, I, I forget that because I'm thinking about George Duke. But that's yeah, true. yeah, yeah. I mean, um, no disrespect to George Duke. That's no, amazing. But of course, you know, yeah, in he terms played of that drum film, that's like as iconic as the you that's, know that DNA of pop music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna no, say that's like absolutely. the that's like hearing an opening Beatles chord or yeah. you know the Birds, Mister Tambourine exactly. Man. You know, it's like hearing that sort of stuff. So that the, yeah. the, the time I played with Ndugu it was a orchestral, um, like a orchestral tribute to Dr. Dre mm. um, by this guy Sly Fifth Ave. So I was playing keys, but there's another keyboard player, which is Bernie Worrell. <laughs> so I'm like playing keys. I'm like, look over to my left, there's Bernie Worrell. Yeah. Look over to my right, there's Ndugu Chancellor. And now I look over at the wings, there's Dr. Dre. And it was crazy. Yeah. And honestly, I've never had more fun playing with another keyboard player as with Bernie Worrell. Like any anything either of us played just just meshed together so beautifully, and that was that meant a lot to me. Yeah. Like we and we, we talked about doing more, and then he passed away six months mm. later. Mm. Um, but that that was magic. I mean, he's you know there is no Parliament Funkadelic without Bernie Worrell. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And I mean, I grew up with that. Um as a lot of people like that Talking Heads concert film. Oh my god! Stop yeah. making sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's one of those people. It's a bit like Pino playing with Paul Young. Yeah. You know, if they just did that, that's enough. That would be enough. Yeah. But there's worlds yeah. of music and, that they and, and were for them, involved. That in. was just a little side thing. That's right. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like because that would have been my. You know, I might have heard some Parliament tracks before, yeah. but I wouldn't have known it was Bernie sure. until I went back to it. But yeah. that visual yeah. of seeing this guy. Yeah. And he's kind of a puppet master on that oh stop ma- making sense thing. You know, oh he's God. just such a crucial. Yeah. It's almost like he's standing behind David Byrne, and uh-huh. he's like he's almost like a musical director in yeah. that version of that yep. band. Yep. Well, yeah. That's that's what I feel like about with Wally Bataru with Sly yeah. and Robbie yeah. with Grace Jones. You know, yeah. He was 
the magic in a way. Yes. But and yeah. so do you ever stop and think, you know, like, your dad would be pretty proud of this because even if it wasn't his scene musically, this is probably where he wanted you to get to and you're doing, you're portraying the sort of confidence and tenacity that if he could have, in that aspect, he might have done. I think so, and that's that's a really nice way to reflect on it um, because stylistically, definitely, he wouldn't appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. But, yeah, he, he would... He might have liked the dance, but he would have appreciated what you did to get to the dance. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know? And he, I know he was, I actually know, he, I know he was always really proud of me. Yeah. Because he would tell his friends and yeah. they'd tell me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, he never would tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so, yeah, I, I think I've done him proud, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, as, a, as a father myself, I know that, you know, all I'll want is my son to be, to, to achieve his dreams. Yeah. You know, yeah, they're yeah. not my dreams. Yeah. So I think irrespective of generation and how you express it, I think that's a pretty archetypal parenting thing. Mm, you, mm. You, you want your kids to be happy, right? Mm, mm. So what's the juggle been like for you in terms of own work versus session work, live work for other, yeah. you know, sideman work, sure. whatever you want to call it? You're a jobbing musician, as I said. You're a guy who's going... I've got to get paid to live. Uh-huh. Um, I've got to have experiences mm-hmm. to nurture my soul and yeah. to feed my creativity. But you have kept up a pretty um, regular, almost prolific um, role of solo al- of effectively solo albums or bands where you're the band leader and the, you know, I, I, I th- I you, think, I think you're no slouch. I think sixteen albums is prolific. Yeah, not not, well, not almost prolific. I no, think it is prolific. I think it's absolute. <laughs> well, you know, it depends. Are we are we going on a Frank Zappa scale or a Miles Davis scale or well, are we? If we went on a D'Angelo scale, I'm hella prolific. Closer, exactly, and that's that's it. So yeah, no, I think you're um you know you've so so what you know how does that work? Like yeah. how do you you, you, you're painting a portrait of someone who never sleeps. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love to sleep. Sleep's awesome. Um, how, many, I, how many days a year do you dedicate that to, to that? <laughs> I mean, I, I like to say, too, that this is not rocket science mm. and it's not brain surgery. It's just, it's just music. And also as music, it's not Stravinsky. Mm. It's just music. And I'm having fun doing it and it doesn't... The act of creation doesn't take a lot of time. I think especially once you get to a point where you understand your own expression and artistry and you believe in that, then... I mean, the last time I had writer's block was 10 years ago. And I don't ever expect to have it again. Like, I, I, I worked out what it was for me and how to dis- dissolve it. Um, but I've you know, I predominantly focused on my own career and my own music. Mm-hmm. And... I've, I'm not, I never used to get I never would get called for sideman gigs and bands like I, I get called to do remixes a lot mm. or on my London time I do a lot of session work like keyboard work in the studio on a, on a club track but it wasn't until I moved to LA that I really started sidemanning well what what are the steps to, that get you to LA so how do you finish up in London so London it was 10 years I'd say the first five were nothing but magic mm. The second half, the grind kicks in. Oh my god, it's a hard city. Yeah. I mean, the weather, which affects the people, mm-hmm. the expense, mm-hmm. the system, and then also my community got basically gutted when MP3 happened. 
know, that we had mm. one main distributor mm. and they weren't ready. So they went under and they, that was our hub. And then a lot of, a lot of people just dropped out. It's like, well, I can't sell records, so I can't get gigs, so I'm out. You know, we'd press up a record and the first thousand would be gone in the first week if it was an average record. I mean, yeah. at, you know, reinforced, like Digo's lot, they were doing like, you know, 20, 30,000 twelves. Just stupid yeah. numbers. Yeah. yeah. In today's terms. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you got some independent artists are struggling to sell five hundred. Yeah. So yeah, when digital happened, it really you know, pulled the pulled the rug out quite in quite a big way. Um and then also I felt like you know, I was getting itchy feet, like I'm not from London, this isn't this has been amazing, but what's next? And I did always want to go to the States. So as fortune would have it pretty much all, all, all of my major moves involve women in some way. So my son's mother, my first wife, um, we broke up and she got off at a teaching job in Santa Monica in Los Angeles. So we'd broken up, but we we're still technically married. So for our son, we decided to go separately together to America and see what's up. You know, I was done with London. It was perfect timing. And so it wasn't the New York that I'd always wanted to go to, but it was America. And as it turned out, it was the right decision. You know, LA's been nothing but amazing for me. And one thing I've appreciated is that if I never live in New York, I'll always love New York. Mm. You know, mm. I, w- I won't have a thing. You won't have London. the London thing. You won't. You yeah. won't wear yourself out there, I mean, or, I, or the city won't. For, yeah. For like five years after I left London, when I go back to Europe on tour, I hated London. Right. Like it was only in the last five years, I'm like, okay, cool. Now I can have a new relationship with it. Mm. But it, it really, it was scarring. Which coincidentally is when none of its residents want to have a relationship with it. That too. <laughs> Touche. Um, but yeah, LA, I, I didn't know what to expect. No, well, I had some expectations because I've been touring there a lot. Mm. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to be in the studio with this person and this person. And none of that manifested. Um, and it wasn't until I started... Um, my my club night out there, party called Church. Once that started, then things started to roll. Like I was, you know, the whole premise with the club night was I wanted to share my my life's journey with music in one experience. So it would start acoustic jazz and it would flip to like a live electronic dance party. So the dancers would come down early and hear some Ellington and Monk. The jazzers would stay late and see all these capoeira crew and house dancers get down. It was a it was a really cool story. And then I remember one time, um, this vocalist uh, named Dwight Tribble, who's an astounding talent, like in the kind of Leon Thomas, Ferris Sanders school, um, we, were, we were mid-flow and Dwight just suddenly, I look up and Dwight's on the microphone, like uninvited, killing it, yeah. like killing it. And I talked to him after, I was like, man, thanks for getting up. He's like, man, I just, I couldn't help myself. And then suddenly I'm called to play in Dwight's band. So that's when the sideman thing really kicked in. Mm-hmm. It was in LA. Um, from Dwight's band, someone else saw that band and was like, man, I want you to play in my Ethiopian band. And then you know, Harvey was making a record and his A&R person had come to my gigs and was like, man, you need to hook up with Mark the Clive Lowe. So all these things started happening, which I've never seen as my primary thing. Like a lot of mm-hmm. music, there are a lot of musicians for whom that is the primary yeah, thing. Yeah. They don't want to be band leaders yeah. or artists. You know, for me, it's something I want to express, which requires it to be my music. At the same time, I was producing records for artists. Um, 
a singer named Cy Smith from DC and Sandra St. Victor, who was from the family stand, the Ghetto mm. Heaven. Mm. So I produced albums for them. So I was kind of, I was, there was, it was kind of a schizophrenic life where it was like the producer hat doing albums and remixes, the sideman thing, and then my own career. And uh, yeah, I, I managed to get some sleep. Um, I've been through two marriages and maybe that's testament to my lack of balance in my life. Yeah, it's funny. I was going to say to you before, uh, so all of this, you know, there's, everyone's got baggage and trauma, but I was like, mm-hmm. I'm not really seeing it in you. You are just telling these stories of, you know, out, outside of being borderline bullied into learning the instrument to begin <laughs> with. You've walked past that to just filling your life with music, but that's the area where you... Yeah. let yourself down or struggle to it's, find yeah. a balance like there's, there's as relationships a, yeah totally it's been a personal cost and, yes yeah and I, I, and that's not uncommon for people doing what you're doing it's completely common and mm. you know sadly mm. um i think there's something about artistry that's very selfish yeah um by necessity yes and and i think if you're especially independent artistry there's a tendency to need to feel a need to be a workaholic like if if i'm not doing this no one's doing it and there's always shit to do mm, mm. you know the to-do list never ends and in touring it's like when my son was born you know i was a breadwinner most of the bread came from touring so, yeah. so i went on the road and then so, you know, i love the road so i started yeah. extending the tours and then went the marriage you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. um you know second time round, i thought i could i was ready and I mean, you know, every relationship has its own specific dynamics, but notwithstanding that, I don't. I still think I wasn't ready. Mm. And at this point now, okay, maybe maybe I'm ready now because I I understand my artistry now. I'm not like I understand the connection to my to my roots and my instrument and what I want to do. Whereas before, it was almost like blind leading the blind it's like well nah, you must have you know. a security too not if not just financially but like philosophically you kn- yeah. you know what you can do you That's know what, what it takes yeah. to do it yeah and so you know despite all burning desire to go gung-ho you know that you can call time on it for a bit because that's or maybe you don't, but that's what you're getting towards, hopefully, is that you can call time on this for a bit because that's the yeah. smarter move to do Yeah. when you have someone else's feelings to consider. Totally. Yeah. I mean, my version of calling time, like right now mm. I have one, two, <laughs> the next three albums are done, and I'm thinking about the fourth one. Mm. So my version of, call, of calling time is being more prepared. Yeah, yeah. And that's, who knows how many phone calls you're going to get tomorrow or next week or whatever on top of I mean, that, right? It's, like, it's actually, it's an interesting time right now because my you know, my calendar for this year, as of maybe three or four months ago, has been stacked. And I had a call for a production job yesterday, which is a great opportunity, has to be before the end of the year. And so I'm trying to see where can I fit in this job? And I managed to squeeze it in. But I'm realizing that you know you can't. I can't scale my business. There's only one of me. Mm-mm. You know, like the clever, the clever option in production is like what Dr. Dre does. Dre employs a whole lot of producers who produce for Dr. Dre for his brand, and he's yeah. the executive producer. Exactly. So when it's yeah. produced by him, you yes. don't actually know if it was him or not. Yeah, yeah. And that's but he gave it a tick. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's that makes sense. Yeah. And then touring, you can't really do much. Yeah. 
there is only one of you. But I'm realizing that if my time is fully booked up, then I've maxed out my income, I've maxed out my energy, I'm done. So my challenge right now is how do I look at this as more of a business and work smarter? Yeah. Because it's like you know, coming to New Zealand, like I've, I came here this trip primarily to see my mother and then, you know, I put in a couple of gigs because I'm here. And so once there's a couple of gigs, you know, see a few friends for dinner, mm. my time's done. It's like, well, where was, where's my days off gone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, st- I'm trying to learn how to, I'm learning how to schedule days off. Now I've got to learn how to respect the days off that I've scheduled. Yeah. Well, that's the freelancer slash self-employed yeah. curse for across the board of for course. people, isn't it? That's you're, right. You're always scared, like, wait, if I, don't, if, I, if, I, if I switch off that day, I might miss some opportunity. Mm. Or I could be doing this thing which has to get done. But that, you know, that white space or when you can turn off, that's what fuels your ability to work and create. I have to read for what I do and for what I for who I want to be and yeah. what I'm trying to do but I, re- I read a lot but I don't read that much if that makes sense uh-huh. like I I read in stolen moments right. and because I feel guilty but actually reading is not it would be a nice um, relaxation yep. and it also fuels ideas and creativity Absolutely. but I put myself through horrors to read I just feel guilty. And so that's a small version of part of what you're talking it's, it's, it's about. But relative thing. to me, it's, it's, the, it's same the same thing. thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like you have to have, you have to take input in order to be able to give output. Yeah, that's right. You, yeah, you, yeah. You can't just output. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I've had two moments where I felt there's a combination between burnout and, and writer's block. And it was because of, I didn't have a balanced life. Mm. I mean, you know, now... You know, the last seven years I've been training capoeira, Brazilian martial art. Um, I have a daily, you know, morning, pro- morning routine of like meditation and yoga. I try and eat clean as I can most of the time. I try not to party too hard. Hmm. You know, I'm just trying to be more sensible about everything. What um, got you thinking about behaving like that? Um. It's, it's all good ideas, but yeah, I, something bad what, would have probably been lurking to... It always seems that way to I mean, enable well, the good and you know the good decisions yeah. in people. One of the first things was actually um, my ex-wife was... She used, to, she used to kind of jestfully tell me, but not in jest, <laughs> that I was gaining weight. Right. And I was like, whatever. And then my mum came to LA to visit... And she, all, all mum wanted to do was go and see Chris Angel, the magician. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I drove her to Las Vegas and went to see Chris Angel, who was fucking terrible, by the way. Right. Um, and, but in the hotel, there was a set of scales. And we didn't have scales at home. I was like, oh, let me see how much I weigh. And the number freaked me out. Like, it freaked mm. me the fuck out. So I went down to breakfast with my mum, had my last eggs, Benny. I was like, nah, this, I'm sorting this out. And I'd, I'd already started Capoeira, but I, I got seriously into, into training at that point. I was like, nah, I'm, this is, my life is changing. Um, and then being in LA in general, it's a very healthy-oriented lo- yeah, place. Health, yeah. health and lifestyle-oriented place. Yeah. You know, a, like, yoga is not Why is that? Is that people... I think it's the it? weather, and it's yeah. always been progressive... Um, it's always been a there's always been a huge spiritual community there like kind of new age spiritual thing and the way that new age and spirituality has finally started to interface with 
diet and just daily habits and mindfulness. Is that like a lot of the hippies from the 60s reinvent you know the, the yeah, first generation I, I hippies so. reinvented themselves yeah, as the kind re, of the rebranding yeah that's right as kind of like 2.0 yuppie hippies <laughs> you know like yeah. business build a business out of it yeah, you know man. what am, what am yeah. I interested in I'm interested in this how yeah. do I yeah like yeah. even even the even the weed industry in LA yeah you know that's it's not a whole lot of stoners I mean they're definitely wasters yeah but, yeah 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 but it's a it's a it is a holistic medicinal thing it's not seen as and so now you've got like I don't know what you call them, but you've got like Uber drivers for tinnies, basically, right? You've got Uber drivers yeah. that'll little little drop you off. Oh yeah, and and it'll, it'll be billboards advertising. Yeah, that. yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. Need weed? Kind of yeah, thing, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, um, but yeah, I th- so I think being there has been huge. And then my ex-wife also, you know, had a huge influence on me with her lifestyle and you know her own personal journey. So yeah, just being exposed to stuff, mm. and then aging is yeah. obviously a real thing you know I'm, I'm I think the year before last I was on the road 175 days yeah wow and I'm also carrying a lot of gear with me and I'll be doing late night shows early flights yeah. and you can't sustain that yeah and no, it's very easy to I would imagine being on the road it would be very easy to um Indulge in like your your, your eggs, Benny, and stuff like that because you go, I deserve this. You know, I I need a little bit of a comfort. Not just that; it's like every gig, all the alcohol is free. Yeah, I can if if I want three bottles of whiskey in my broom every night, they will they'll be there. Mm. The drugs are copiously available and free. Mm. You know, and then you know, there's there's women everywhere, and what what there's every vice you could indulge in is is like a buffet. Mm-hmm. So I think for a lot of people, as touring artists, sometimes you lose your way. Well, I was going to say that must get boring unless you're a spiritually bankrupt person, and right? that and that <laughs> and and that is the ultimate enabler of creating a spiritually bankrupt person, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Amy Winehouse didn't have to die. Yeah, it's that kind of shit. Yeah, you know, you got your. There's a certain level of success when you if you're if you have a team as well, and then your team isn't watching out for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna die. Yeah. 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 So the heritage thing is the thing at the moment that yes. you, is is that done or is that are there more parts to that to come when you say you've got three albums right. planned and cuz cuz we currently have heritage 1 and 2 yeah. and you're doing shows around that. So yeah. when when I say is that done what I'm meaning is there, there's no there's no heritage 3. Right. Like literally. Yeah. But it's definitely opened up the door to a whole mm-hmm. new vitality for me. Yeah. Um, I when I'm when I before I made I think up to and including Six Degrees, largely instrumental music. Mm. I was just making music that I liked. Like it didn't have an inherent meaning. Mm. Um, you know, some and with instrumental music, sometimes I'd I'd write some piece of music and I'd assign a name to it. A title based on something going on in my life, yeah, yeah, or something. But but I wouldn't have actually written the composition based on that thing happening in my life. It mm-hmm. was after the fact. Mm-hmm. And then after Six Degrees, I got more into production, and would all pretty much always be producing vocal music with guest vocalists. So the the message in the music or the meaning came through the lyrics. And over the last maybe six years, I've found myself drawn back to instrumental music a lot more. 
but still it was like well, what's the meaning of this music so this particular project has taught me a lot about that where you know when I wrote it actually I rewind to even get to this project three years ago I had an ayahuasca ceremony mm-hmm. and that was life-changing I've never experienced anything like it and you know I haven't dabbled in every drug under the sun but for example if it's mushrooms and weed ayahuasca makes us look like you know kitty snacks right yeah it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a ceremonial drug yes you know so it was an all-night ceremony there's a shaman leading the whole thing and it's highly visual hallucinogenic um so the it's a plant medicine like i mentioned so the plant is seen as kind of the the guide yeah and the plant basically takes you on a journey and shows you what you need to know and so i spent this night seeing all this amazing (laughs) stuff that was the first half of it was it was basically taking me through japan and new zealand and showing me showing me what my connection to these how does the dosage work what's the preparation it was served in a in this case it was served in a prune juice Mm -hmm. because it's it's pretty horrible stuff yeah yeah and then you purge so you're basically throwing up at the same time yeah because it's toxic yeah um but visually it was yeah it was taking me through all this japan and new zealand stuff and i I recognized what it was showing me but i didn't understand why it was showing me what it was showing me one thing i knew afterwards was that i need to immerse myself in nature in both both of those countries asap Mm -hmm. three months later i came here for some shows and i landed at auckland airport got a rental car drove straight out to the west coast got some little place in the middle of the bush and i went bush and walking going on bush walks three months later it was like i was instantly back in the ayahuasca ceremony it was incredible right yeah okay the connection so it's uh... very tangible like a um, almost like a a meditation word, like a trigger. It could almost be dialed up like that. Yeah, absolutely. In that, in that way, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, you can access it. Yeah, yeah. And turn it on. And so, what I realise now in hindsight is that what that ceremony was giving, gifting me, and showing me was my my roots connection. And so. New Zealand is a hard one, for, harder one for me to connect to. Like I feel like New Zealand is my physical home, mm-hmm. as far as my body was born here and I grew up here. Japan's your spiritual. Japan's home. my spiritual home. There's yeah. no question about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, not long after that, I was asked to do a do a work in LA, commissioned for a concert, and the organisers basically they they wanted me to play. I could do whatever I want, but they had a mandate. So it's like, well, what haven't you filled from your mandate this year? And they're like, oh, the, the API, which is Asian Pacific Islanders. And so I was like, cool, I have something for you. Because I've always wanted to do something yeah. with my Japanese thing. But I hadn't had the opportunity. So with this, I could I flew in some Japanese musicians. I had my band. I flew in Shingo 2, who's a really dope bilingual Japanese rapper. Um, and we did this, and I wrote all this music for this show. Most of that music is on the Heritage Records. So I did this one show. And at the end of the show... I felt a way I've never, ever felt after performing. Like, basically, if I'm doing a jazz gig, somewhere in my head I kind of go into jazz mode. Yeah, yeah. If I'm doing an electronic club gig, I'm kind of in house music, broken beat mode. Mm. But with this show I did, it was just music. There was no modes. Mm. And it was like, wow, this is me. Mm. 
And so suddenly, all this music I'd written, it took on meaning. You know, it's, it's instrumental music, but it was so full of meaning. And when I composed it, it was so easy. It was just like, I would just sink into a feeling from my childhood of a Japanese story or something I love or experience in Japan. I'd just noodle on the piano and there'd be a composition. And I'd be like, yeah, that matches that feeling. Cool. Done. It was really easy. Yeah. And really joyous to do that. And so about a year later, like I knew I wanted to continue the project, but I didn't know how. And a year later, I was commissioned to do a show in San Francisco. It was a great budget at a cultural arts institution. So I was like, oh, cool, let me revive that repertoire, but without the Japanese musicians. I just want to see what happened. And so I brought my regular band, and we did it. it sounded great. It's like, cool, this is a record. So then back in L.A., there's a club called The Blue Whale, where I play a lot, one of my favorite jazz clubs in the world. Um, we did three nights there, doing the, doing the material, recorded all three nights. I took just the bass player and drummer in the studio for one day, and we recorded the material again. And then I edited between all of that. So sometimes there'd be like, you know, horns from the live show over the rhythm section from the studio. Right, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or maybe the intros in the studio then it switches to the, yeah. to the band for the live. Okay, well, maybe you, know. you are prolific like Frank Zappa because that's a bit of a Frank Zappa uh, approach, I mean, yeah, actually, isn't it? Mo- most people don't know it's, it's ostensibly a live record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and but so, he did, Frank did that with all his life. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, it was one record as well. So when I finished it, I was listening to it, and I was like, this is really dense. It's a lot of information. Mm. I don't know if this is one record. <laughs> and my point of reference is Stevie Wonder. Yeah. So Songs of the Key of Life is, without question, an amazing record. Yeah. I have never listened to the whole thing. Right. Like, I'll listen to one record at a time. Do a side or do an LP. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And that's what made me think, yeah, if, if I... If I of all people can't digest Songs of the Key of Life in one sitting. Mm. How do I expect someone else to digest my Japanese jazz instrumental project in one sitting? <laughs> so I divided it into two. Mm. And the great thing was once I divided it, it made sense as two halves. I was like, oh, cool. This is mm. like, this is two halves of one story. And so, yeah, that is the complete project. And it's it's been so special. But it's open doors for it's totally what's open coming doors. next. I, mean, yeah. I, I was in Japan last month in a city called Kaga in the middle of nowhere doing a two-week artist residency. And I was, I was walking around nature. Again, took me back to the ayahuasca trip. Yeah. But I was walking around the nature, you know, taking like long-form videos that I wanna, I'm going to write ambient music to. And that's a very personal connection to the nature in Japan. Mm. But I wouldn't even have considered that if not for this project. Mm-mm. So, yeah, it's absolutely opening up a whole new world. Like how... Uh, Stevie Wonder did the Secret Life of Plants after after um, Songs in the Key yeah. of Life, yeah. Yeah, which finally people are recognizing. I know, as isn't a it? Masterpiece. Isn't it amazing? Because I because I grew up with those, like a lot of people, with those yeah. key Stevie Wonder albums, and yeah. and Songs in the Key of Life is is the pinnacle. is the one for me because yeah. it came out the year I was born, so it's what uh-huh. my parents were listening to. Uh-huh. So you know, I might love those other ones, but I'll never love them more than Key of Life. Yep. But I know what you're saying. I would tend to play one album. I yeah. probably have listened to it all all the way through. I mean, but it's I'll a t- lot of music. It's a lot of music because it's got that bonus EP as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. And uh, it was such a production, eh? Is it with the big songbook and everything yeah. like the LP? So awesome. But yeah, um, but the journey through the Secret Life of Plants is amazing. But it was just Incredible. ridiculed, and now it's really yeah. 
people are noticing it. It's, yeah. it's really interesting. There, I remember reading Questlove's book, and he did a really nice. Oh yeah, he did a really nice uh-huh. piece about that, using mm-hmm. that as an example of like. I'm sure it spoke to a lot of people that read that book where he said, you know, as a music fan, I'm always looking for the album that's allegedly not very good in an artist's yeah. career. You quite often find that it's great. It's and he, he used that example. Yeah, man. And he used it perfectly. I mean, it, it was... Doobop is not that example. <laughs> but Tutu might be, you know. Tutu's a great record. That was my other yeah. early... And that one might Tutu's be, you know. Record. Like, that's a good record. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they do pop up. I mean, and it, it was... It was also really, it was scary for me to put out Heritage because I felt like, like even the album before that, Church, Yes. to me that's still more of a, more of a club record than a jazz record, mm. even though it's overtly more of a jazz record than what I'd done before. Mm-hmm. But it was still very programming heavy and kind of in that ilk. I felt like Heritage was not that. Even though it still has the electronic undercurrent, it was much more of me as a, piano player mm. and an instrumental composer and with the band and the story is so personal and it's so kind of Asian Japanese obviously Mm-mm. I was like are people going to get this you know it was I was concerned and that has been you know I've been shown that that was unfounded it was unfounded and when you really when you really put yourself out there in honesty and mm. vulnerability and truth through your art people will receive that well two things when you do that when you when you do all of that it's usually because you really fucking mean it and believe in the thing yeah. so therefore it's good yeah yeah <laughs> and another way of looking at that is if it's good people can process it as that first and then access the actual story. They can just yeah. go, fuck, this music's making me feel something. Yeah. I believe this person. I think this is shit hot. You know, yeah. if that's their visceral response, mm-hmm. then they can start to leaf through it and pick up, fuck, there's some pretty heavy connections in this. This yeah. is this runs deeper. You know, so either either way. You win. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You and yeah. they win. That's right. And then like yeah, if, yeah. If, Every every piece on both records has mm. this a lot of story behind it. Mm. So when I perform it, I share the stories. Yeah, and I've had in in Sydney last Saturday playing. There's a Maori guy. I've had it in LA with a lot of um, Black Americans. I've had it in other somewhere else with some other ethnicity. But basically, I've had other people come to the audience, come to me, and they really connect with the whole heritage root story mm. even though their heritage root story is it's different, different but, but just, it's all universal right yeah and so just i think seeing experiencing someone sharing that so from such a personal space and you know i think i do it pretty articulately as well um it, it in the good sense it triggers that in other people well a little bit of what you're saying perhaps is also um that the 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 white narrative is just so all-consuming, all-pervasive that, you know, I'm white. We we all we don't even know it. We right. We take it for granted. We mm-hmm. don't care. We don't assume it's affecting people mm-hmm. on a level. Mm-hmm. The stories you're gathering from other people through sharing yours is this speaks to us more than that <laughs> vanilla stuff that's pumped into us, right? Yeah. Now there's nothing wrong with some white stories, of course, but the the sheer <laughs> audacity of us to think that it's the only story oh my god is killing people i mean 
some I've been I've been reading um, Yuval Noah Harari's work. Oh yeah, yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. And just him and a few other people, the way they just kind of dispel yes. a lot of that is yeah. is so needed. To uh, Tanahisi Coates. Oh my God! Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really it's a really ripe time to, and, I mean, dangerous time and a safe time, to really connect with your roots. It's a it's a really interesting time in human yeah, history. Yes. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've loved talking to you and meeting you. I'm, we're actually meeting each other through this conversation, we really. Are. And that's yes. that's something I enjoy about the podcast. But it's not always the way. Some sometimes I'm talking to people I know very well. Right. Um, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? Oh, there's always more. <laughs> I, I, I know. I, 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 I'm certainly very happy to do, uh, you know, a part two with you at some other point because because well, yeah. you will have released about 14 more records by the time we meet again. But right? but is there is there anything you want to plug or put out there right now before? Because I feel like we've 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 gone for long enough on, um, yeah, on no, level. There's so much, and I. I'm sometimes wary about sharing with people a lot of what's coming because I feel Mm, like mm. I don't want to overwhelm people. Sure. But um, one thing that is, um, and part of my Japan story, is that having done Heritage, and that's with my LA band and recorded in the States, and almost like a, you know, even though I'm biracially Japanese, it's more of an outsider's look at Japan. Yeah. Um, And having done that, I wanted to do something in Japan with Japanese musicians. So I have a, a project called the Ronin Orchestra, which um, album drops September 27, actually, mm. so it's about to come out. Um, but that's a really fun project with essentially my favorite Japanese musicians. Wow. About nine guys. Um, we did an EP last year, and then for the album, I, I basically wrote the album the week before I went to Japan, went to Japan, recorded in four days, done, record's done. And um, it's, I think it's a, really, it's a really good record, and I'm really proud to do that. To do something in Japan with Japanese musicians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's musically, it's not a Japanese record, but personality-wise, it, it, yeah, it spiritually, is. it is. Or yeah. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like that, that's kind of like the if there's a heritage part three, it's, that's it. that no, might be it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, no. Yeah. Well, that's it. Is the things are going to be linked to the heritage records for a while in yeah. terms of how you find yourself pursuing them, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, listen, I've had a really great chat. And as I said, thank you, man. Great good pleasure. to chat. Totally. Yeah, cool, man. 